0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, February 28, six one zero nine three seven our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. I don't have any sports report. Clemson wins in basketball. Gamecocks play tonight. They're both in the NCAA tournament. It looks like when you talk about records and, you know, where we go from here, uh, big baseball weekend, the Gamecocks and Tigers play Friday at, in Columbia. Saturday in Greenville and Sunday in Clemson. That's kind of the lineup this weekend. Um, two of the blue bloods in college baseball. Two of the blue bloods. I think that's the only sport that both universities can say, two of the blue bloods in um in whatever said sport. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Clemson, Carolina, um, doing well in basketball. I think it's kind of an interesting question to ask Gamecock and Tiger fans. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's not important because it's not football as far as I'm concerned. But who has a better basketball team, Clemson or South Carolina, and who wins the series this weekend? You notice I didn't say it was the better baseball team because I don't know if winning two out of three right. in early March
1: decides who has the better baseball team. That <laughs> and in basketball, South. the time they played, Clemson beat they the did. Gamecocks. They
0: did, but that doesn't mean they've got a better team. Right. Right. They won the head-to-head. I'll, I'll ask you this. Who won between Kentucky and South Carolina? South Carolina. Who do you think's got a better basketball team, Kentucky or South Carolina? <laughs> Kentucky. Yeah, I'll take the Wildcats. Um, sometimes it bees like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway.
1: I wanted to mention, too, uh, for listeners in the Florence area, the ESPN radio station will have that series on the radio. South Carolina baseball games. Uh, ESPN radio carries the conference games. All the SEC opponents will throughout the season. Uh, so we're not there yet into the season, obviously, but we also carry the Clemson series, of course, because of the importance. Uh six forty five on Friday is airtime for the baseball broadcast. Uh three forty five on Saturday afternoon, and then Sunday at one forty five. Okay. And I'm right. Is it Columbia,
0: Greenville, and then Clemson? Isn't that the uh, uh the yeah. three day lineup? I think it is, yeah. Okay. Be a lot of fun. I stand by my comments from yesterday. You ready, Josh? I know this I mean, I know you are in the middle of this and you think about it nonstop. Play a midweek game in Clemson. Play a midweek game in Columbia. Go to Myrtle Beach and play a three game set. Play a Friday, Saturday, Sunday series at the home of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. Have golf tournaments, have fan route. I mean, have all, I mean, just make it a big celebration of the two major universities in our state. And it's a little bit insulted to Coastal. And I think that would be the intent to a little bit insult Coastal as, you know, I know you're up and coming. And God bless Coastal for what they've done. Um, I mean, in all honesty, they're going to be Central Florida and East Carolina sooner than later. If they aren't already Coastal Carolina, uh, excuse me, East Carolina and Central Florida. Um, But they're two legacy universities in our state. And any opportunity to get a chance to go take a leak in their backyard, I would take (laughs) advantage of that. Just to kind of, um, I don't know, just to um, more distinguish yourself uh, from the others. I want to begin by saying... That I am done. I mean, I tried yesterday. I tried to get it yesterday on Twitter. I read some of the back and forth about Trump and Haley and some of the some of the Never Trumpers. I mean, and we'll walk through this in a minute. I mean, I'll go through some of the math. The Republican nominee never gets one hundred percent of the Republican vote, but we never talk about it. It's only when it's Trump we talk about the holdouts, those who will not come around. Um, I think Michigan. Gives us a pretty good definition of where the GOP base finds itself. Um, And I think yesterday was a good day, not just for Donald Trump, but Republicans in general. I've said that I think Trump wins Nevada, I think he wins Arizona, and I think he wins Michigan. 235 plus 16, Georgia, gets him to 251. There's not a lot of work to do. Once you get to 251, I mean, you can't lose all the swing states, but you don't have to win them all. You can lose Pennsylvania. You can lose Wisconsin if you win Michigan, Nevada, and Arizona. And I think yesterday's Michigan primary is a testament to some of what I said or reinforces some of what I said yesterday. Trump got 756,000 votes. Haley got 294 votes. There were about a million fifty thousand Republicans votes cast. Biden got six eighteen uncommitted. Got one oh one. Dean Phillips got about twenty thousand. There were seven hundred thirty nine thousand votes cast in the Democrat primary in Michigan. So Donald Trump got more votes in Michigan than all the other Democrats, including uncommitted combined. I mean, they got about seven hundred thirty nine votes cast. Trump got seven. 56, that's a good sign. Now, now all the media will tell you is the bad sign. There are 30% under no condition that will vote for Donald Trump. No, 30% don't consider Trump to be their first choice. I'm arguing that half of those are never Trumpers. I mean, I get it. I was a, a DeSantis supporter. I was, uh, you know, I'm a Nikki Haley. I get it. I, mean, I understand it. I'd rather have somebody other than Trump. That's about 30% of the party. But there aren't 30% never-Trumpers. Whatever that number ends up being, and Michigan says it's about 30%, slice that number in half, that gets you to 15. What is the historical average of Republican voters voting for? You've heard it. I mean, nobody's ever got 100% support of the political party. I mean, it's 91, 92, you know, 93. Got to be over 90. I mean, you know, the the Republican nominee has to get over 90% of the Republican voters to come back. That's crazy.
1: I looked it up. John McCain in two thousand eight got thirty three percent of the vote. If you use Haley's argument where she's talking about forty percent of the party doesn't want Donald Trump, if you use that same argument on that election, you know, sixty-seven percent of the Republicans didn't want McCain to be the, the nominee. But
0: that's not the narrative. I mean that was no, not the media but, narrative. But that's
1: the numbers. But but here's where I've
0: landed. I tweeted that late yesterday afternoon. Um I mean you do with your money what you choose to do with your money. You do with your vote what you choose to do with your vote. But but I'm I'm arguing Is it a better investment to donate to Nikki Haley's campaign or buy a pet rock? (laughs) Pet rock kills snake. (laughs) The rock will hold a door open on a summery evening. I mean, if you want to get biblical, you got David and Goliath. I mean, I think buying a pet rock (laughs) that may have to... Double as something other than a pet rock, Josh. Once again, David had a pet rock, killed Goliath. It's a Bible story. I've seen rocks big enough to kind of hold a door, wedge under a door, keep a door open, and a sitting on the porch on a good summer afternoon. Throw a rock at a snake. I mean, wh- <laughs>
1: Making a good argument
0: for a mean, rock. It, it, it's a better <laughs> argument. I mean, it's a better investment to buy pet rock because you might need the pet rock to hold a door, kill a snake, or kill a giant. Throwing money away is giving money to Nikki Haley's campaign. It is. I mean, buying a pit rock is a better investment than giving money to Nikki Haley's campaign. If you hate Trump, go feed a hungry child. Donate to some worthy charity. Stop. I mean, you're entitled to do with your money what you choose to do with your money, and God bless the Wall Streeters, and God bless the corporatists. I mean, they made enough money to throw money away on something other than a pit rock, and Nikki Haley... I tell people all the time. Got to call and we'll get there. I tell people a lot. When I ran for office, I had a seven-minute speech, a nine-minute speech, an 11-minute speech. I had a 15 or 16-minute speech. I didn't have a speech when I get when I got beat by 30. I didn't have a speech when I got beat by 20. I mean, Haley's campaign has been reduced to, hey, give me that speech out of our catalog when we get beat by 20. Give me that speech when we get beat by 30. Give me that speech when we get beat by forty, Nikki said she's an accountant and she knows that you know uh, forty is not fifty. Well, does she know that twenty six point four is not forty? is not. 30? I mean, it's just it's ridiculous that Haley continues to insist on remaining a candidate, but it's her prerogative. And once again, if people don't want to buy pet rocks but throw money away, NikkiHaley.com. Let's go to the phone.
1: Verd in Marlborough County. Good morning, Verd
2: good morning man ken i think you're right spot on this morning it was a great day for donald trump but uh even a greater day for the republican party uh well, by my figures with about six percent of the votes still to be added in uh president trump uh, defeats biden by about almost three hundred fifty thousand votes and uh, he also uh, defeats uh, nikki haley by nearly a half million votes but in uh, 2020 in the uh, general election in november uh, Joe Biden won Michigan by less than 155,000 votes. So uh, that's a step in the right direction to vote more Republicans. And pretty much what happened in South Carolina, you know, you look at the PD region was the really shining star, I think, uh, last Saturday for the uh, uh, Trump campaign. The PD area uh, voted, broke records and turnout. out Marlboro County, we voted two to one against Joe Biden, uh, defeated the uh Democrats seventeen hundred eleven to eight thirteen over that two week period, and, uh, Dillon County, uh, eighty two percent of the eighty three percent of the people voted uh for President Trump. Marlboro County, eighty one and a half percent voted for uh, President Trump. But you're right, uh, two great two great days. Last Saturday was a great day for uh, Tr- President Trump and the Republican Party, and uh, and then yesterday was just a tremendous day for President Trump. And I, I'm like you, Ken. I don't know. Uh, if she's an accountant, I don't know where she got her accounting lesson in, but she's sure not, she's not paying attention to whoever her teachers were because I, there's no sense in her staying in and continuing to cost President Trump money to try and fight her. But I really, I really think the campaign decided just to give up on her and just go ahead because we didn't spend very much money at all. I think $46,000 was what I heard we spent in Michigan on advertising on radio. Thank you,
0: Verde. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand, the, the narrative, I mean, Rev's talking about historical precedence. And I mean, I don't know that a candidate has ever dominated a party like Trump is dominating the Republican Party today. And the counter narrative is there are these 30% out there that for whatever reason don't want him to be the nominee. It's not 30% never Trumpers. I don't buy that. I mean, There's just no way I buy that. I think whatever that number is, and it looks to me like I mean, because Nikki got some benefit of the doubt being the former governor of South Carolina running in, in South Carolina. We didn't know what that number was. I mean, I think we said over the airways, and I think Robert may have agreed with us, 5%, maybe 6%. In other words, if Trump is at 70, Nikki's at 27 or 8. I mean, she could get to 35. You know, she could get to 37. I mean, that's what we always thought. She got to, what, 39? I think Trump was at 60. I think if you if you take... If Nikki Haley's not a former governor of South Carolina, it's very resembling of Michigan. I mean, it's kind of a 70-30 proposition. Uh, Nikki got 26% of the vote. Uh, You got some uncommitted. You got a little bit of uh, Ron DeSantis actually got 1.3% of the vote, I think. But Trump's at about between 70 and 75 of Republican voters. Um, I mean, I think he's closer to 75 with Republican voters. I think independents probably like Haley a little more than they do Trump. I mean, the question that nobody's asking, do independents like Biden or Trump? I mean, nobody's asking that question. All we're hearing is independents prefer Haley over Trump. Okay. I mean, let's say you're right. Let's say independents prefer Haley over Trump. Do they prefer Biden over Trump? I mean, we're not talking about that, but there's so much. It's just it's bizarre to me. And I mean, if people were dumb, and some are. I mean, I understand, you know, just saying dumb things about this election. If you're dumb. But, but, but most of these folks aren't dumb. I mean, they, they're, they're politically literate. They understand what's happening. They just refuse to accept it. And, and I want to go back, and maybe Ver could have answered that. I want to go back and see what is the historical average of Republican nominees convincing Republican voters to come back in November and cast a ballot in their favor. Primaries skin people up. And some people don't, I mean, they, they just don't move on. I mean, the, you know, some of the George H.W. Bush, I got to believe there was some George H.W. Bush voters that didn't show up for Ronald Reagan. I don't know what that, I mean, I think it's about 92 or 3%. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 92 or 3%. Let's say my math is right, and 25% want somebody other than Trump to, no, yeah, 25% want somebody other than Trump, and and half are never Trumpers. That's 12 and a half. That's higher than average but that's nowhere near what the media's narrative is. I mean, the media, Donald Trump is going to win Michigan. I mean, unless something crazy happens, I said it yesterday morning. I feel more confident today when you look at the data, when you look at the turnout, when you look at the, the, the state of the Biden campaign, when you look at where Trump is. Um, you know, all the Haley supporters aren't coming over to support Trump. I understand that. I mean, he's, he's a controversial political figure. But yesterday was a good day for Donald Trump even more so because it was in Michigan. And that's the state that I think he wins. I don't trust Wisconsin. I don't trust Pennsylvania. Not that I trust Michigan. I just think Donald Trump is in a good place to win Nevada, Arizona, Michigan. I've already got Georgia in the column. Um, and what do you make of the trial, the, the trial about the trial? Uh, Fonnie Willis, <laughs> her uh, paramour, and now Oboe, who's her law partner, but I mean, he basically said, "I can't remember if I lied." But I mean, that may be one up on Clinton. Clinton said it depends on what the definition of his is. My man yesterday, hot Lanta style said, "I can't rem- I don't know if I told a lie or not." How do you not know if you told a <laughs> lie or not? You that's couldn't called, write
1: this stuff if you were writing I mean, it, it's a cra- story.
0: It's hot Lanta style. I mean, that's what it's hot Lanta style. Take a break. Back in a few. Okay, the Michigan polls closed. Some of the Michigan polls closed at nine. Newsflash: I get up early. I go to bed early. So I've not heard some of these news reports, but I wanna, we'll listen together. Uh, most of you probably didn't go to bed as early as I did, but, um, but Josh, and Q, I wanna hear what um, John King, I see it, something on Twitter here today, CNN in shock on how many people in Michigan voted for uncommitted. Let's go here, not live, but um, a replay from yesterday on CNN.
3: This is what Joe Biden received. Again, forgive me, 1,141 votes. Dean phillips 54 votes. And uncommitted, make sure I get this right, 3,703 votes. So that's a wow if you look at it this way, this is 23%. And this is 75%. Um, And so this is just the city of Dearborn, but that is where the biggest pocket of the Muslim American, the Arab American population. This is a place President Biden carried big time in 2020. This is key to his chances of defeating Donald Trump in Michigan again. So,
0: why is the debate mm. not the Muslims not turning out for Biden? I mean, you've not heard that. I mean, did you hear John King in real? Wow, let me make sure I get this right. <laughs>
1: yeah, he, before he wrote it, so he looked, looked at,
0: if, at it. So, 75% of the people in Wayne County, Dearborn, didn't vote for i'm telling you the combination and biden's going to have to side with palestine and when he sides with palestine he hurts himself with a lot of the jewish vote uh, it's pandering i mean he's 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 a he's a just a kind of a mean nasty old man and that's who he is and he's going to have to make some of these calculated political decisions and he's never had much of an ability to do that and now he has none of the abilities to do that And when you try to be all things to all people, but once again, that's stumbling on a narrative. CNN didn't set out to prove to you how many, you know, what kind of problems Joe Biden has. They stumbled on that because John John King said, wow, I mean, this is 75% of the vote that were uncommitted. Now, I don't think they vote Trump. I mean, not for, for the lie. There's no way they vote Trump, but they stay home. I mean, it would be the never Bideners, so to speak. You know, Biden won't do right in the, Palestinian-Jewish conflict or Israeli conflict, so we'll stay home. That has not been a part of the narrative. It's been about all Trump's issues regarding the never-Trumpers. And I want to say this. I mean, I've tried to be <sighs> respectful. I mean, I really have. And I want to go back to the question we asked yesterday. But I'm I'm to the point now in my life to the never-Trumpers, do what you got to do, man. I mean, just do what you got to do. You know, if you're never-Trumper, Uh, We know who you are because every chance you get, you tell us, you know, you're a never Trumper. I mean, it's something, I get there's something cathartic or therapeutic or I don't know, in your mental makeup that requires you to let the public know, you know, loudly and proudly, I'm a never Trumper under no circumstance or condition. Will I vote for Donald Trump? Fine. I mean, you're entitled to that, right? There is no doubt about it. But I'm to the point now, instead of trying to reconcile, you know, kiss and make up, you know, let's move past the primary and get to a better place and prepare for the general. I'm just to a point now where do what you got to do, man. I mean, if for every never-Trumper we don't have, we'll go find somebody else. You know, we'll, we'll go find another blue dog Democrat who's historically been a member of the working class and believed that the Republicans were for the wealthy elites and corporate America and globalist in intervention. I mean, we'll go try and convince them because we're not going to convince you that Trump is beneath the, excuse me, he is not beneath the dignity of the office of president. Um, but, But I will say this, Josh, and I want to get back to something. Several of you took exception with what I said yesterday. Is it true or not that some of the political energy surrounding America First has a belief that there's too much cronyism, there's too much nepotism, there's too much insiderism, and I want to vote America first because it's not about cronyism. It's not about nepotism. It's not about insiderism. It's rather a an organic and real, authentically motivated effort to reform our government to something other than what it is. Is that
3: accurate? I would say so. I okay. would agree with that. Josh? Mm, kind of. I think it's a little more complex than that. Okay.
0: Give me the complex side of
3: it. Well, I think that— you know, for for years, and this is not even a generational thing. There's plenty of people in my generation that think this way. I think that a lot of people get caught up in in things like, well, that's, hip- that's hypocriti- hypocritical. That's nepotism and whatever. But I think at the core, what people really want is people are generally self-interested. So when you talk about the nepotism in politics, so someone like you and me might come out and say, I'm against this guy appointing his son to this position just because he's his son. But really, it's because we don't like them. You know, does that kind of make sense? So basically, I disagree with you, though. If, I think if,
0: it is about nepotism.
3: It could be. But what I think is people, like, if, if there's someone I really like and they're appointing their son because they just want their son to have a job, have at it. I I don't really care that much but, but because you, I like you that much.
0: But you agree that's intellectually inconsistent. Yes, you agree
3: that. But I don't First,
0: care. Well, I mean, I get it. But but stick with me. Yeah. You agree <laughs> that you're being intellectually inconsistent by saying that it bothers you. How many family members of members of Congress have jobs in the military industrial complex? Does that bother you? Let, let me let me. I mean, does that bother Josh? I mean, it bothers me. Does it bother you? Sure. Okay. But the way got, I
3: see it is like this. I'd rather, I think that a nation led by liberals is worse than a nation led by hypocrites. Right-wing but, hypocrites. But but
0: is it, okay, but are we being hypocritical in not liking the fact that some of the family members of members of Congress have jobs in the military-industrial complex, but we're not offended by Laura Trump being co-chair of the RNC? Is that intellectually inconsistent?
3: Yeah, if, if you espouse that being nepotistic is wrong in of itself. But, I
0: mean, you can't say one's wrong and the other's not. Well, that's— I mean, I mean you can say that if you admit I'm being intellectually and, inconsistent. And, and, I mean, you, 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 I, here's what I'm saying, Josh. Yeah. You can have those different opinions. I mm-hmm. mean, they, there's no doubt about it. You can, be, you can be bothered by one and not bothered by the other. But I think when you stand there, you're being intellectually inconsistent. And, and a lot of what we argue as America firsters is let's not tie ourselves into political knots. Let's be kind of true and adhere to what we say and what we believe. And if we believe that the family members of the members of Congress don't deserve those jobs but get those jobs because of who they are and how many influential people they know and have dinner with, then how are we not equally offended? That Laura Trump could get a job as RNC co-chair when it's cut of the same mold.
3: And here's what I would say if I if I could say this. So my opinions on politics very different from you guys in in certain ways. But you where want to win. I want to win. Okay. But that's exactly the point where this this idea of integrity towards like like not being hypocritical. So basically what people do is this. They see Donald Trump get in and they come up with all these excuses. They come up with, well, he's he's opposed to he he's anti-democratic. He's opposed to freedom. He's the worst, you know, pre, he's going to be a tyrant. That's the excuse, but they just don't like him for whatever reason that is. My point is like just forget the excuse and say, "Oh, yeah, I I don't like Lindsey Graham or who, you know, just some just some nameless politician appointing their son. But it's because I don't like that politician and I don't want their son who probably agrees with him on everything to be in politics. But if it's someone I like, I'm okay with that. I don't I don't really care that much. And it's kind of like with the free speech thing, the left is fighting to suppress right wing free speech. If if the right wing were on top and we were fighting to suppress left wing free speech. I'd be okay with that. I, I'm i not a free speech absolutist. What, what, you're, taking a,
0: you're taking a long road, but you're basically saying that because, and I'm using the military-industrial complex as an example, because I think it would surprise you. I mean, I really, I don't know the number, but I think you would be blown away. How many members of Congress have family members who are working in jobs, good jobs, at Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas and – Honeywell, and, you know, General Dynamics. I mean, I think it would blow your mind to know how many of those deals have been made. You, you're not bothered by those deals. I mean, they don't, they don't much bother Josh. No,
3: nah, I mean, obviously they're, they're not. It's probably not the best thing in the world, but it's not the worst thing in the world either. Like, but see,
0: I think that kind of antics upsets the average voter about as much as anything. I've, I've found in my political life and I guess the difference is I've run for office and you have not. Never do. Um, but you got to look at things as a candidate. Sure. And and once you look at things as a candidate, it's hard to not look at things as a candidate. Totally I, mean, I, get I think that. the majority of views I have that I espouse over the airways are from a candidate's perspective or a former candidate's perspective. And I said yesterday, I want Trump to win. And I believe having Laura Trump as the RNC co-chair – decreases the likelihood that he wins because the average voter doesn't believe they can do things like that. They're not powerful enough. They're not influential enough. They're not important enough. They're not wealthy enough. And there's a resentment based in jealousy. I mean, I'm just being honest. It's based in jealousy. I mean, it's one of the truest and rawest human emotions we have. And that sometimes in my life, I'm jealous. I mean, I don't like to admit I'm not jealous of that. Uh, I mean, that's kind of um, anytime you say, I'm not jealous about that. I'm going to pat you on the back and admit you're jealous about that. Normally, not all the time, but normally uh, to some degree, I'm not saying I'm overwhelmed by jealousy. I'm consumed by jealousy, but, but I think voters are not Vulcans and they're not logically thinking through some of these things. And I think there's a, an independent voter who is not a never Trumper. I mean, a never Trumper is a never Trumper, but an independent voter that says, wow, I mean, the Trump crowd accused the other side of insiderism, nepotism, and cronyism, but he just figured out a way to get his daughter-in-law chairman of the RNC. I, I just think it hurts him with independence.
1: And I, I get what you're saying, and I just don't think it weighs that much on the importance It may the not, but it's scale. not going to have to weigh much. And, and the, the deal the, the how, you, how,
0: how many votes do you think will decide the election?
1: yeah very few i mean i get what of, you're out of, saying out of, out of
0: 130 million we're going to really count the last 25 or 30 thousand
1: i mean i can't argue with that point you don't want to take a chance to lose even one vote as close as these things are and I, as close I, <laughs> it, I mean you make a great point if
0: there if i thought trump was running the table
1: and i thought biden
0: was 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 zero chance of winning make her the co-chair
1: but to me the the offensive thing is all the secret deals where the secret family members are, you know, working for these military contractors and making money that their relative has, you know, that that, that is conflict of interest. It is nepotism. It's all of that bad stuff. I'll say this about the Trump thing. Her name is Trump. He put her out there. She has to be voted into that position at the end of the day, and she might be darn good at it. I don't know. She may be. But your point is well made, too. Fair enough. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments.
0: Intellectually inconsistent and proud is our new moniker here this morning on Wake Up Carolina. I want to go Hell back because yeah. I'm not trying to. I, I, mean, think,
1: that, I think it's a fun debate. On I mean, this it's an subject. interesting
0: debate, yeah. and I think it plays into the human psychology of elections. I mean, it, it's a bigger issue than Laura Trump being co-RNC or co-chair of the RNC. It's more about the human psychology of a voter. And Josh is saying, basically, I mean, I don't put words in his mouth, but you know what Josh said to me? If I like them, I don't care what they do.
3: Is Trump that, could shoot accurate? someone on whatever street well, I mean, he if, said, if, and I'd still vote you, you for You
0: basically him. said, if I like the guy, lady, and think he, she, are doing a good job, I don't much care what they do on the periphery. Um, you know, I elected them to do a job. They're doing a good job. I support the job they're doing. They're doing it kind of the way I'd like to see it get done. You know, put put your sister, or daughter, or mom, or daddy, or whatever. Do whatever you, you've got to do. I'm just saying voters at times aren't very rational. And and Trump has some blind spots. And one of his blind spots is people believe he's the most arrogant human being they've ever met. And he doesn't have to play by the same rules that everybody else does. And that feeds into that psychological part of who you vote for or not. And I think when they get, when we get to November and independents cast ballots in Michigan and divide in Arizona, I'm probably overthinking it. But, But I've told Josh, I probably look at everything as a former candidate. And I don't, want any, I don't want any reason to lose. I don't want to give any, I don't, to, I don't want to borrow problems. We're going to have enough problems to begin with. I mean, there are enough pitfalls. I mean, you've got demographic challenges. you got, you know, they've got a big voter turnout machine that we're so nervous that we can't match its intensity. I mean, I'm thinking about everything that could go wrong. That's something I'm in control of. I'm in control of basically saying to the RNC, hey, let's take a pass with Laura being the co-chair. Let's find somebody who's not named Trump as the co-chair. I think Rev made a good point. She may be spectacular at it. I mean, I think she's an NC State graduate, um, got a degree in some sort of international culinary. I mean, I read that yesterday because I wanted to know. Well, I just wanted to know, okay, you want to be the RNC co-chair. Where do you come from? What are you about? I mean, other than being the the daughter-in-law of one of the presidents, excuse me, the daughter, excuse me, the wife of one of the presidents, very public um, kids. What have you done to suggest you could do this job? Um, I'll be cynical. You ready? I mean, it wouldn't surprise any of us if her job as co-chair was to figure out a way to, when she's in the room, funnel money to pay legal expenses.
1: I mean, I don't think anybody would be shocked by that. And I think the caller later in the show yesterday when we were discussing this issue made a good point about who Trump can trust. Obviously, he can trust his daughter-in-law, right? So having somebody that he can trust, because there's so many people that have been in the orbit that you know turned out he wasn't able to trust the does, leaks does, and the does things. Trust
0: like, mean do what they want him to do. I'm gonna be contrarian <laughs> here for a second. In Donald Trump's world, when he says I want to be able to trust Dave Baker, <laughs> you know what Donald Trump is saying? Control. I want I, bingo. I mean, and I, I, I don't think you should shy away from that. Yeah. I mean, that that's been his world. He's yeah. been in control of things for the majority of his life. So when, when when he's got so much at risk and so much of his, you know, I, I don't know, life. I mean, he's got a lot invested in three presidential campaigns. I mean, his livelihood is at risk in New York. There are a lot of things kicking in this guy's world. So when Donald Trump says, or when Rev says, you know, Trump wants somebody he can trust, I hear Rev say Trump wants somebody he can control. And when the money comes in, the money's doled out, could Trump have Laura Trump in the room when a $100 million donation shows up in the name of limited government, and it's supposed to be allocated to 20 different members of Congress, 10 different senators get their share, the, the presidential campaign gets its share. What, what if Trump wants all that money to go toward paying his legal bills? Are you for that? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean how hard <laughs> would it be for Laura Trump to say to her father in law, Hey, that, you know that $100 million that came in two weeks ago from the tech gazillionaire, from Peter Thiel? Let's just make up a name. Peter Thiel sends the RNC $100 million. Peter Thiel tells the RNC, hey, I want some of this money to go to president's campaign, but I want some of this money to go to J.D. Vance. I want some of this money to go to Kerry Lake. I want some of this money to go to, you know, the, um, the person trying to upset uh, a, a Democrat in a swing district in Illinois for the House of Representatives. And Laura Trump says hey, that's what they want to do with the money. And Trump says, yeah, but I'd rather get all the money and pay some of these legal bills. I mean, we're flying the flag of the Republican Party higher than anybody. I just think you're asking for problems. I think it's self-inflicted. If she is the RNC co-chair, I think it hurts his chances of being elected. I don't think it's a big deal, but it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be a big deal. What if Joe Biden, told the DNC he wanted his granddaughter to be co-chair of the party. What would you think about that, Rev? I mean, what would you think about that, Josh? You know what you'd think? You'd say, man, that's nepotism to the nth degree. Good land. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about uh, a criminal enterprise. Really? I mean, we're going to allow—we can't excuse Trump. I mean, we, on, on some of these things, he's wrong. And I think advocating for his daughter-in-law to be the co-chair of the RNC is wrong. Let's go to it's, the phone.
1: It's an unnecessary, possibly inflicted damage. It's just self-inflicted to me. Let's not do that. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike.
4: Uh, yeah, that, I, that uh, very well could be a self-inflicted wound, but he needs somebody he can trust while he uh, runs out and tries to lead everybody to a mud wrestling match, and that's all there is to it. But uh, Does he need somebody
0: he can trust or somebody he can control?
4: Well, I think it's a mix with him. I mean, he's obviously an alpha leader, tri- leader type. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's part of his makeup. But I think he needs both. He needs both. But uh, absolute control is not the thing. I, I, can he be taught? I think his behavior in this campaign has shown that he can learn from past mistakes because I, I think he's paying a little bit more attention to the Uh, people that know what they're doing as far as uh, running for uh, political office this time and not not just going on its instincts, which are surprisingly right a lot of the time, but not all the time. He needs some sort of uh, moderating effect. And there's two ways of looking at things. You look at it's like Sherlock Holmes. He looks at the evidence and says, oh, Moriarty, the bad guy did it. And then there's the people that say, uh, well, there was a crime committed here. Uh, let me see. Uh, there's, there's a bad guy over there. Let's find a crime to uh, convict him of. And so that it's the difference between induction and deduction. And that, but uh, I I can't really outguess Trump because I think he's a genius as far as uh, uh, manipulating uh, the media, and I think he's. Terribly underrated, and I hope they continue to underrate him as far as his ability to uh, to to control control the media. Whether he can control Laura uh, Trump, I think he probably can. I think he can control a lot of people if he wants to. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate
0: that eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We got time for another call.
1: Uh, got about a minute, a little over a minute. Thomas and Pauly's Island, you're on.
5: Good morning. Hey, Ken, I think you might be overthinking something here. Uh, first of all, Rhonda McDaniel was doing a terrible job. But if you'll notice, when she first ran for RNC chair, she used to throw around her name, uh, Romney McDaniel, and she's dropped that recently. So from Trump's perspective, I think he's, he feels like, number one, she's not doing a good job, but number two, she's still a Romney, so I don't really know if I can trust her. Um, And the other thing, the one thing I think you might be overthinking is the difference between the RNC and a taxpayer-funded position. Uh, I have the choice to contribute to the RNC or not. I don't really have much of a choice to contribute to, uh, for example, the FCC, which is a a government commission that Mignon Clyburn is appointed to with no experience. So. I think there, and maybe I might be.
0: Thomas, we got a hard break. You're welcome to hold on. We got a hard break. Top of the hour. Back in a second. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. It's hard to believe, but elections are secondary in twenty twenty four. I mean, we got all these stories. We got Trump and all his drama. Biden and all his drama. We have a Michigan primary. Normally, that's the story. But in today's news cycles, that's hardly the story. What trouble is Trump dealing with today? What <laughs> trouble is Biden um, dealing with today? Hunter Biden is a kind of an interesting name in the Biden orbit. Fox News ready is Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, Hunter Biden has appeared or will appear for a closed deposition before the Oversight Committee, I don't know, as part of the impeachment inquiry into his father? Is that a fair accounting? Correct.
6: Yeah, yes, it
0: is. Correct. So So, so – What are they trying to find out? Why is this relevant in the impeachment inquiry?
6: Well, uh, you know, the the entire impeachment inquiry is to try to find out if President Biden never benefited from his son's business dealings or his family's business dealings. And if those business dealings ever impacted his decision making, either while he was vice president or while he was president. So, uh, Hunter Biden, in many ways, is kind of like the main event witness for them. They've been working on trying to bring him in for uh, a number of months now, and now they finally have him.
0: Are we any closer to a public appearance by Hunter Biden? Is there Are, are we are advancing down the road of Biden appear, appearing uh, in, in a public hearing?
6: I think it's definitely possible down the road. You know, Hunter Biden, that was what he actually preferred to do. His legal team wanted for him to have a public hearing. But the House Oversight Committee put their foot on the ground and said, well, no, you don't get to have a public hearing because everyone who sat for a deposition with us or sat for an interview with us did a closed door one first, and then they had the public hearing at a later date. So we're not going to make any special privileges for you. So uh, Hunter Biden is going to sit for the closed door deposition, finally compromising with that. And then we could very well see him uh, do a public one later at at a later date. And
0: Ryan, this is in conjunction, I mean, is this too, I mean, Bob appeared and basically mm. incriminated Biden and his father uh, as, as you know, right. yeah, Joe Biden didn't know exactly what Hunter Biden was doing. He was a part of it. Do we expect Hunter
6: Biden to deny what Bob says? I wouldn't be shocked if he does. You know, some of the Republicans I've talked to about this do not expect Hunter Biden to be the most cooperative witness in the world. Uh, You had James Biden, the president's brother last week, deny that the president had any uh, involvement in the family business deals. So there's a lot of different. uh, But I think there definitely will be that attempt to try to tie Hunter to this. But whether or not he either answers questions or takes the, the plea of the fifth, I think it's all up in the air right now.
0: Thank you, Ryan. Well explained. Appreciate it, my man. Have a good day.
6: You too, my friend. Thank you. But you
0: can't skip past that story. We're <laughs> talking about Trump and Laura Trump, and am I overthinking some of these things? I probably am, but former candidates have a tendency to overthink things. That's just the nature of campaign. Let me tell you something about political campaigns that Josh and reverend can't relate to. It breathes an abnormal amount of paranoia. I mean, when you put your name out there on a sign, on a billboard, on a television ad, on a ballot, filing for office, something about the, the level of paranoia increases a hundredfold. So we do tend to consider things more seriously that probably shouldn't be considered uh, that seriously. Let's go back to the phone. Someone held on. Uh, and I want to get my Polly's Island fix on
1: Wednesday. <laughs> That's right. Thomas and Paul's Island, thanks for holding on. And you are back on the air.
5: Hey, Ken, I, I do understand where you're coming from. Uh, when you run an election, I'm sure you want to win 100 percent of the vote. And, you know, sometimes you, you think about things that may not be an issue. And I understand Trump and Biden are probably going to be razor thin and you have to worry about the, the margins. Uh, I just see it a little bit differently when taxpayers are footing the bill versus whether I have to. I had the choice to contribute to the RNC. That was the only point I was making But there. But you
0: would agree we're being somewhat intellectually inconsistent? If a lot of America Firsters' complaints are nepotism, cronyism, insiderism, aren't we doing kind of, sort of, the same thing?
5: Uh, to a, to a certain extent. But if you look at it throughout history, whether it's the RNC or DNC, the the, the person running at the top of the ticket is always getting their their pick as to who's going to run it. For example, you know D- Donna Brazil was in there when Hillary Clinton was running. Uh, they and who was it? Ed, whatever his name was, when George Bush, George W. Bush was running. They kind of get their pick of who they want in there, and I understand that as well. Um, but yes, there is there is some hint of of hypocrisy there when when you say that. But it's but I I guess I just feel a little more strongly about the use of taxpayer dollars versus voluntary contributing to some other entity.
0: I'm um, with you. And she's got to win an election. Yeah. I mean, Trump can't appoint her. I mean, his, right. his his endorsement is going to carry the day. You know that. And I know that Trump wants right. Michael Watley to be the chairman. Michael Watley's going to be the chairman. And I think the presidential nominee deserves that. I mean, I think he's sure. earned the right to say who he wants to be as the nominee. I just think the, the difference is we seem to be a little intellectually inconsistent and hypocritical when we do the same thing that we've accused all these others of doing.
5: Understood. Fair I, enough. You know, I, I can't argue with that.
0: Thank but. you. Appreciate it. I mean, it's just an interesting debate, and I think Josh makes a valid point. I think Rev makes a valid point. Thomas makes a valid point. And, and I've I've admitted that the majority of my consideration and concern is having run for office before and thinking about, okay, if this does become an issue, um... I mean, I I love this saying, and it's not mine. I mean, I, this saying didn't originate in Pamplico, I don't think, but when I got elected to county council, there was a certain person I'd go see occasionally when I wasn't real sure about the, uh, the politics of it. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do, and I knew what I felt was right, but I wanted to make sure I was thinking about everything, and I would go see this certain person who had far more experience in business and politics than I did, and uh, he would always tell me, yeah, I hear you. But but I you gotta think about that. And I'm like, mm, okay, I hadn't thought as much about that. And um and there would be a rare occasion, Josh, that he would say, and he was an older, wiser man, but on rare occasions he'd say, You do that and you more hell you'll have more hell on your hands than you shake a stick at. I mean that was his exact say, You do that, you'll have more hell on your hands than you shake a stick at. And and I think it's good to bounce those things off of people who have been you know, involved in politics and business and and some of these appointments and some of these, some of these ordeals, I just, I go back to, and maybe this is an obsession that I have. Maybe this is one of the abnormalities in my world. I want to win all the votes. I mean, I want to win every, I know that's not realistic. I know there's no way to win all the votes, but I want to try to win all the votes. And when I think Laura Trump I think it's net negative than next positive, unless she's the best there's ever been at being a co-chair. I mean, if Laura Trump is the best there's ever been at fundraising, at messaging, at organizational, uh, you know, then... And and I'll tell you, I still believe there's a place for Drew McKissick in all this alignment and realignment. Drew Drew has been, I think, very capable at his job. I think Drew was hamstrung. He may answer this if I ask tomorrow, if he calls in tomorrow. Drew may have been hamstrung some by Ronald McDaniel's ineffectiveness. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. I mean, the co-chair is subservient to the chair. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a food chain, right? I mean, the, the chair runs the party. The co-chair kind of answers. I mean, obviously they have a big role, but they're not running things, so to speak. So their vision, their insight, their, you know, where they want the party to go is is a little bit at odds at times. Um, I mean, I, I, I'll share this with you. Uh, a, an insider told me, and maybe I said this yesterday or maybe I didn't. I think I told Rev off the air. An insider told me yesterday that the day before the New Hampshire primary, no, the day before, I'm thinking about when it was. Anyway, th- there was a moment in time. I don't want to misspeak and say I know the primary, but there was, a, there was a place in time that the DNC had about 100 people on the ground in a certain state. The Republicans had about 80 people on the ground in a certain state. The 100 people the DNC had on the ground in that state were knocking on doors the evening before the primary. They were filling vans up with gas. They were doing everything they could to orchestrate a high voter turnout. The 80 members of the RNC, about half were at a real ritzy restaurant enjoying lobster and steak, and nobody knows what the other half were doing. Well, that's kind of the wine and cheese Republican Party that we grew up with, and while the Democrats are there to the last moment making sure they've dotted I's and crossed T's, the McDaniel-led RNC was just as, not as vigilant about voter turnout and winning elections as the DNC was. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning.
7: Hey, guys. Again, again, here's my point, too. Again, if you know this happened, they know this happened. And, I mean, your guys, I mean, yeah, you got some connections, but the point i am making is they know what they're doing, and they aren't, and they aren't trying to fix it. I mean, here's my concern. Okay, so you got Joe Biden who got done because it was um. who won last time last, uh, by less, you yeah, know, he, he stole it. You I, 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 can't, but I, he stole the damn election. Well, the Democrat Party and the, and the Cathedral stole it. He has not done any campaigning at all. The election is, what months are we in right now? We, we're about March, right? Was that five months away, six months? How yeah, well, long have the election? an it's, it's about
0: six months away, but you've got a summer in there. That people kind to check out, so you've really got about four more months uh, of of intense okay, campaigning.
7: Right. And, and, and he can't campaign, so they're gonna so so he, this is a, So in a normal campaign, if you and I run it, and I say, hey, kid, so uh, he just can't make it, buddy. We're gonna have to put somebody else in there. And you say, all right, well everybody's gonna check out for all this stuff. Uh, what we'll do is we'll have a convention in August, and we'll pick somebody and we'll make them our nomination. And I'll say, Ken, how in the hell are we going to win if the guy can only campaign or woman can only campaign September and October? He said, I don't worry about it, Breeze. we I already got a cover, man. So in theory, they can call me up the bar and say, Breeze, sit tight. Uh, you might need to get out of the uh, trading business because they were are going to make you president in November. I mean, it, I mean that's what it's, I mean, what world are you living in to where the president of the United States, the future president of the United States, gets nominated by their party. Nobody has, has done one bit of campaigning, not one bit of campaigning. I mean, if you were to look at, let's say if Ravislava would have won, he'd have done years of campaigning. So the Democrats are going to appoint somebody, and it's exactly two months. They're going to do what's necessary to win the president of the United States. And you telling me that's gonna be done in a fair and, and and legit election. That's just like a dictate. That's just like these Tommy dictatorships and ships. they think he's gonna be appointed, or she's gonna be appointed president. And it, and they act like there's not a damn thing we can do about it because we're eating lobster, I guess, or we're getting paid off to eat lobster. So I says, hey, you know, like, whatever's happening is just stinks the hell back.
0: But Bree th- thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. And that goes to Watley. I mean, let's take a break and come back. But I think the reason that Trump is so convinced Watley's the right guy, I mean he's a lawyer by education, but he's one of these guys who believes that what Breeze said is the way forward. We're we're not electing presidents on election day any longer. Can we build the infrastructure to to to, to match the Democrats on unsupervised mail-in ballots, unsolicited mail-in ballots, chain of—I mean, that's where we're behind. I mean, that's where the Republicans have lost their way. They just—I mean, that, you know, I guess it's romantic nostalgia. You know, it, there's a lot of beauty in standing in line on Election Day. I mean, it seems like they believe that vote cast counts, counts twice. It doesn't. I mean, the, the the vote that the Democrats harvest counts once, the vote that you wait in line for two hours— Cast There's no intensity value. I mean, you may be intensely loyal to the process and go on election day every year and stand in line for two hours to cast a ballot for your favorite politician. It counts as one. It counts as one. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 I'm being very intellectually dishonest when I say that we should be deeply concerned about who the RNC chair is, who the RNC co-chair is. They don't need to have the same last name as the presidential nominee, when I believe, as Breeze does, it's all about unsupervised mail-in ballots. I mean, it's not about messaging. It's not about faith. It's not about family. It's not about CPAC. It's not about, you know, George. It's all about turning out the vote. I mean, that's what we've done to the election process in America today. We've made it an election season instead of election day. I mean, I'd love to see us get back. Josh, to casting ballots on the day of the election, maybe the day before, you know, a a voting election today. I don't know. Just if you can't go today, can you go tomorrow? But you're going to cast your ballot in person. Someone's going to witness you cast that ballot before it's counted. I think that's better for democracy. I think it's better for a representative republic. But that train has left the barn. That horse has left the station. And we ain't going back. I mean, we're just not. Um, any attempt to go back to some model of that is going to be voter disenfranchisement. It's going to be voter suppression. Um, I just think you've got to, and I think the RNC has decided this now at the request of Trump, and maybe that's why Watley, I mean, his general counsel of North, he's the chair of the Republican Party in North Carolina. He's a former energy lobbyist. He's a lawyer by education, but he's really, 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 aggressively gone after voting in propriety. I mean, that's kind of his claim to fame. Um, Now going after voting in propriety is also called voter suppression. I mean, in the other circle, I read a story on MSNBC a day or two ago about, you know, it's dangerous, perilous times ahead if the Republican Party nominates Michael Watley. Well, they've nominated. They don't nominate. He offers himself for consideration, and he did that yesterday. I mean, he announced his candidacy as a, for the RNC. And normally it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, most times I'm going like, hey, Trump does his thing. But but I don't think Trump can do his thing separate of the RNC because the RNC is going to have to be the infrastructure that matches the Democrats in driving voter turnout. I mean, we live in this unsupervised mail-in ballot era. And the Republicans under McDaniel just never bought into that. I mean, they still believed it was messaging and quality of candidate and, you know, fundraising and banners and and Saturday morning breakfasts with candidates. I mean, all that goes into the the devil's brew, but it's all about turnout. And it's not driving turnout. It's finding turnout. I mean, it's going to meet people where they are. And, and I said yesterday, and Rev kind of chuckled, to me, Michael Watley's success or failure is going to be predicated on when the Democrat harvester shows up at a drop box in Michigan or Pennsylvania at three o'clock in the morning with 2000 ballots, he has to wait on a Republican operative to get out of the way. I mean, the Republican operative is is shoveling a thousand ballots in the box before the Democrat can shovel his (laughs) thousand. I mean, I'm not, it's not good for democracy and it's not the best way to choose leaders, but it's where we are. And the RNC buried its head in the sand and, you know, you, you can, Bree said they stole the election. I don't say that. There, there, there are two choices, in my opinion. They either bought the election or they stole it fair and square. Now, we can argue the constitutionality or not of some of these states and what they did. And, you know, their, their state's constitution prohibited some of these office holders from doing things they did in relation to, um, to managing their elections in said states. But, but, you know, crying over spilled milk is not going to win the next time. In other words, trying to get the Philadelphia General Assembly to hold or excuse me the uh, the Pennsylvania General Assembly to hold somebody in Pennsylvania responsible for doing something that gave Biden an advantage and may have cost Trump that state. I mean, do you really believe they're going to undo that? No, I mean, they're not. they They know they're stretching the limits of interpretation of their state's constitution but they're not going to do that. I mean, it worked. It worked in Georgia. It worked in Pennsylvania. It worked in Wisconsin, and it worked in Michigan, and it worked in Maricopa County in Arizona. Arizona's weird. I mean, everything looks to have gone as normal except Maricopa County. In Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Georgia, it was rampant. I mean, it, what, what I mean rampant is statistical anomalies. I mean, it, you know, in certain areas, Gwinnett County, Fulton County, I mean, there's a percentage of turnout you expect, and the turn- the turnout was 20 percent above average in in Pennsylvania, all over the state. I'm talking about heavily Democrat precincts. It's 20 percent up. The Republican precincts held about their own. I mean, if um if rural Pennsylvania voted at 73 percent, it was about that 73 percent. If if um if urban Pittsburgh or Philadelphia voted at 73 percent it was 88 percent 87 89 um that was all over the state in pennsylvania georgia and wisconsin uh michigan as well not quite as bad in michigan i mean a lot in detroit i mean it happened a lot in detroit but in um but in 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 arizona everything was fairly normal except maricopa county i mean that those precincts are where i mean i'm talking about the uh the Democrat precincts, they went from 69% historical turnouts to 79% historical, uh, you know, 71% historical went to 84% historical, uh, down, I mean, what, what effect did COVID have? I don't know. I mean, I don't think we'll ever know truly were people afraid to go to the poll. I mean, it gave somebody an opportunity. I mean, there's no doubt of that. And, um, and the Zuckerberg money was the big deal—the 500 million dollars. I mean, you, you can. Democrats want to win. Republicans want to win. But I don't know that they're that motivated. I don't know how motivated a Democrat voter is or a Democrat worker is if they're not getting paid. But all of a sudden, you're getting a—you know—you're getting ten dollars a vote, fifteen dollars a vote, twenty dollars a vote. In the grand scheme of things, in an election that spends just south of three billion dollars, what's twenty or thirty million? I mean, really think about it. I mean, if you've got a precinct hustler who's really good in Maricopa County, and I mean he puts the band together and he's got about, you know, 10 or 15 or 20, and they've got three months. I mean, and they're getting twenty bucks a ballot. I mean, how many ballots can they go and harvest? A lot. I mean there's no doubt about that. And um and I think the payment, the Zuckerberg money to the American Center protecting civic life, and then dispersing that money accordingly. That was the game changer. And I think the Republicans have to understand that that's the new normal. Now, but this is where we are today. Um, Will will certain not-for-profits fund voter turnout efforts for Republicans that may include paying people to make sure individuals go to the poll. I mean, what, what do Republicans think of that? I mean, historically, we frowned upon that. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't, want to, I don't want to drive people to the polls. I don't want to pay people to vote. I don't want to have tents set up outside of precincts with food and booze. And I, I just don't want to do that. That nasties up. That taints um, the election.
1: Do you want to keep losing?
0: Well, I mean, do you want to keep losing? I hate it. I mean, do you want to keep losing? Because that's kind of sort of where we are. And I've talked to 100 Democrats that will tell me. And they'll do it with, with a kind of a smile on their face. Yeah, and, you know, we we normally have eight buses, nine buses, 10 buses, 12 buses, and we make 13 trips a day, uh, nine trips on Saturday, 13 on the weekdays. You know, we average 27 per trip. We average 31 per trip. Um, you know, we count on him over here and her over there and then and, and these over here. And any effort to try and impede on that being part of the process, the modern media, the enlightened woke media says, is voter disenfranchisement or, um, you know, voter suppression. I, I don't buy that, but I don't get to, um, to make the rules. So Michael Watley has a history of understanding that, the soft side of the underbelly, if you will. He's going to be the chairman, and it looks like, I guess, Laura Trump is going to be um, the co-chair, and we'll see where it goes from there. Uh, it, you know, Trump can't say it's because of the RNC. I mean, if he loses in 2024, he can't say it's because of the RNC, especially when he handpicks, you know, who he wants to lead the RNC, and he should. I mean, in all honesty, Donald Trump. I mean, the, the RNC as a body should allow President Trump to say who he supports as chairman of the Republican National Committee. I just don't think somebody with his same last name needs to be co-chair of the National Committee. Let's take a break. We'll be back. In just a few moments. You know, one of the issues nobody's talking about, and I want to throw something out there because I think this could be an interesting conversation for us to have. Um, Let's forget whose fault it is that we're $34 trillion in debt. I mean, let's, let's forget that. I mean, it's hard to do, but let's forget that. But it's hard for Republicans to blame Democrats. It's hard for Democrats to blame Republicans. I mean, the two political parties disagree on a lot of things. They don't disagree on that. I mean, the one when, when people say there's been no bipartisanship in Washington, I'm saying, yes, there has. I mean, there's been a absolute bipartisanship on spending money we don't have to the tune of roughly a trillion dollars a year. Would you be in favor or not? Forget whose fault it is. I mean, I understand the first thing that comes to mind as well. I mean, I don't want to do that because it's not my fault. But is it is it in our country's best interest? Is it the patriotic thing to do? For Congress to implement or institute a one penny economic transaction tax on every consumable in America, and all that money, every penny of that money collected goes to the federal debt. Well, I mean, I don't trust. I get stop with that. I mean, stop with the high. I mean, I don't trust them. It's not my fault. I get all that, but but I'm, I'm painting a picture here. We're $34 trillion in debt. What if the federal government made a deal that they're going to raise one that they're going to tax? I mean, the consumerism in America today is about $15 trillion. I mean, our GDP is what? $25 trillion. I mean, the consumer part annually is about $13, eh, it's about $15 trillion. Um, that's buying boats, you know, that's buying uh, you know, dynamic priced. Happy meals and fast food. I mean, that's that's about what we spend as consumers in America annually. It's about fifteen um, trillion dollars. One percent of that would be one uh, percent of a well, one percent of ten would be a hundred fifty billion. I mean, that'd raise one hundred fifty billion. I mean, that's not. I mean, it'd take a long time to pay it off. But but what if we had a balanced budget amendment? In other words, the 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 Senate and house agreed governor i mean the mayor i ah, darn the mayor the president signed it into law we could no longer deficit spend and we're paying a one penny economic transaction tax on 15 trillion dollars of consumerism in our economy and every red cent of that went hmm. to pay off our federal debt
1: See, that feels very patriotic it is like
0: unbelievably that. patriotic and um but
1: it'd be so critical to get the balanced budget requirement I mean, that would be. Well,
0: you got to monkey around with Medicare and Social Security and and some of the military defense contracts. It
1: would would force the spending controls, obviously.
0: What what is the other answer? What is the alternative? I'll tell you an alternative. Interesting. Um, What if we had, you want to be patriotic, what if we had a five cent on the dollar economic transaction tax across the board on $15 trillion of consumerism in America and we sunset it in seven years? I mean, it, that's real patriotic, mm-hmm. but that that stings. Um Very I mean, I, you know, I don't know how much I contribute. I'd have to figure out what that costs me. I mean, it's easy for a penny, it'd be, you know, times five if it were a nickel. But but we got ourselves at a place and and the argument I'd make if given the opportunity, I tell Rev and Josh, Rev and Josh say, I don't want to do that, man. I don't, I don't want to do that. Well, I mean, I'm convinced the government's gonna do what they're going to They'd never do, but they're going to do it this time, and it 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 really adds value to the dollars that you get to keep. In other words, for the penny you're paying in tax that goes to pay off debt, for the nickel you're paying in tax that goes off to pay debt, the dollar you're able to hold and control and spend is going to be far more valuable in the grand scheme of things because we are it would be very interesting to see what would happen to the dollar the second government implemented a plan as a national sales tax to pay off the federal debt your dollar becomes a lot more valuable. I mean, it does because we've demonstrated a willingness to address our debt, and debt is the driver of inflation.
1: Let's go to the phone. Barron in Hartsville. Hi, Barron.
8: Good morning, guys. Ken, in short, I'm all in, but I think we should take a more holistic look on budgeting in itself. And, you know, people jump in here and say it's balanced budget amendment. But I think there's a better way to do it. I think my answer would be that we need to – Probably a constitutional amendment or at least some type of supermajority law that states the percentage of GDP off the start that we want to take in in taxes and that we want to spend, right? We don't have a long-range plan for spending. We basically – they get together every year. They don't agree. We end up spending a little bit more than we spent last year, and it spiraled forever. I don't think there was a grand conspiracy to run up the credit card, but I think that we need that – phase of long-term planning. So we need to come together and say, all right, we're going to take in X percentage, seventeen, somewhere between 17 and 23, that's what we'll fight about, right, of our GDP or is what we're going to spend every year. And the fight in Congress is what part of the federal government gets that slice of the pie. I'm okay with moderate deficits spending. Mathematically, you should keep it below the inflation rate. Right? Because that's a, that's the, with a fiat currency, that's the play you get. The problem is we've kept it in peacetime over and over and over. On the sales tax part, or the value-added tax, or however you want to do it. But it'd
0: be a European I value, I mean, it would be very similar to the European value add tax.
8: Yeah. I've always been more in favor of, instead of putting it into general revenue, of taking Social Security and Medicare out of the equation, putting the wall back up, Make it so that the Social Security Trust Fund can invest in uh, municipal securities and and, uh, investment in infrastructure bonds and use all that money we pull up. They'd make a profit. But instead of taking a payroll tax, what if we put the wall back up and transitioned the employee portion of the payroll tax to being a value-added tax? Think of the percentage of the underground economy that isn't going into Social Security. How many people get paid in cash? right how many people how many of that makes it into the social security trust fund now that nets out somewhat better at the end because they don't get a higher that reduces their social security they get later in life by part of that but not all of it the power of the american economy and the consumer right capture that in our in social security and medicare and i bet you we'd be close to making it solvent and we take off from the federal budget that massive portion of um mandatory spending that's the secret driver
0: that's an interesting yeah but that would be a complicated debate but i think that's a very interesting proposal let me ask you this as i talk about the military industrial complex you're more knowledgeable about that than i am but i've had other folks i mean as we do this show and we talk about these things i've had people reach out to me who have a wealth of understanding about military contracts and how much we spend and don't spend. And they believe we spent about $250 billion because we don't have competition. We only, yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like if Rev doesn't like this hamburger, there's another hamburger joint a mile down the road. If we're paying too much for this Javelin missile, I mean, it's hard to find another manufacturer of the Javelin missile, and those monstrosities of defense contractors have good, done a good job of gobbling up. Some of the upstarts, some of the more innovative companies, instead of competing in the marketplace, they just buy them. I mean, they make them a, a hell of an offer, and they become a subsidiary of Raytheon, a subsidiary of Honeywell. And that's why we're spending nearly $900 billion instead of $650 billion.
8: Anything to that, Baron? Yes, there is. And I'll give you two pieces to go out and read. Right? That gives you this perfect example. One you'll have to find in the bowels of Google. I think it's a Washington Post article from like 1997 or something, but it's findable. And it talks about after the Cold War, there was a dinner. This is not conspiracy theory, I promise. There was a dinner in Georgetown, I think, between the SECDEF or the assistant SECDEF, and they had representatives from a bunch of the. Um, a bunch of defense contractors, and they said, boys, it's time to merge. We're not going to keep up with these Cold War-level spending anymore. We're not going to do this. What happened was we went from – it's roughly seven to three. right? So for if there were seven before the early – in the 80s, there are three by 2001. You get the conglomerates, and the, the effective cost because of the law of competition is painful to study. That's a huge thing. The example of how that of what it should look more like is um, Secretary Lehman. So Lehman was Reagan's first Secretary of the Navy. Lehman came into a problem. Uh, the Carter Navy was basically like not building any enough ships and falling apart, and had this very lack of competition. And the key was the um, the nuclear attack submarine. So they had gone to this system where different shipyards are different building different parts of it. But the engineers in the Navy side were basically had unlimited change orders. This is all complicated to say. Levin came in and said, Nope, canceled the contracts and made the three primary construction yards of SSNs, that's nuclear tech submarines, um, compete one boat at a time. It's a Los Angeles cast submarine, it cut the cost by a third and the time to build it by a quarter. That's just an example of things you could do with those efficiencies. That is one hundred percent a problem. But, you know, I will plug. That I don't think we yet – we need to do that not only for the savings, but because of what era we're in in world history, right? We have entered another great power competition. I'll argue the Chinese are more dangerous than the Soviets ever were, and that we're facing down the next century of, at best, another Cold War. In fiscal year 1984, I think we spent like five and a quarter or maybe like five and three quarters percentage of GDP on military expenditure. I think we're down into threes right now. So we talk about how much money we spend, and it looks like bigger in real dollars. We actually spend a lot less than we did when we had to fight the Soviets. We were getting ready to, you know, the Cold War at its peak in the '80s. All that during an era of this challenge to America—not only just this us in the world, but us at home—that we've never faced before. So it's a two-headed dragon. You have to you have to promote the competition again and get the prices down. But we also have to have a start conversation of we have thirty something trillion dollars in debt, and we need to spend more money on the military, and we aren't. We don't have the money right now. Yeah,
0: and that's well said, Baron. We got to take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of. I want I want to kind of elaborate on that because I had an interesting conversation with someone who listens to the show, is has a, a lot of expertise in that field, and kind of counseled me on some of the. Th- I mean, some of the trees I'm barking up are right, and some of the ones I'm I'm kind of misguided. Let's take a break. Come back on the other side. Eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven. What do you do with a company that manufactures nuclear subs that don't meet a deadline and go over budget? I mean, you throw them out and say, you know, submarine building, son of a gun. You get out of my office. I'll find somebody else. (laughs) I'll just go down to the other nuclear nuclear sub. sub Yeah. I'll go to the other nuclear sub manufacturer. Next one's free. (laughs) Yeah. Just down the street. I mean, you see where I'm (laughs) headed. I mean, that's a complicated proposition, but the person that, that tells me these things tells me that those big, huge military contractors. They never meet budget. They never meet deadline. But there's not a lot you can do about it. I mean, There's not javelin missile manufacturers on every street corner in America.
1: Let's go to the phone. Jay and Nichols, good morning. You're on.
9: Well, part of that problem that you're talking about is that the company that designed the missile still owns all the properties to it. Some other manufacturer can't go out and manufacture it. Because you can't give them the drawings and say, hey, can you make this widget for me and how much will it cost?
0: Should it, we change that, Jay? Should we change that? Should we should we do things as a government to bring more competition to the military contracting world?
9: I'm looking at sort of like the pharmaceuticals. They do the design and development, and they've got the uh, patent on that for five years. And then you can make generics off the same exact patent uh that's a similar thing but the other problem with it is is the government pays for them to design the system but we don't own it yeah th- you know,
0: the government pays paid for, for all the research that leads to the creation of the weaponry and raytheon owns the patent the taxpayer you subsidizes bet. the inventing process and then they own the intellectual property.
9: Correct. And so, you know, we've got to work something out where, you know, hey, this is the government's property. Uh, We did it during World War II. Singer sewing machine was making machine guns and, you know, all kinds of other things. There are other manufacturers out there that can put it together, but there are only a few that can do the design and development.
0: So if the government subsidizes the design work, And Raytheon builds the best javelin missile in the history of mankind, but but the government owns the blueprints, so to speak. The government can go to market with that blueprint and say, "Hey, you nine or ten or twelve manufacturing companies, give me a price on building this missile." That's kind of what you're saying, right? Yes, sir. And that would be obviously in the benefit of the taxpayer. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate the call. That's kind of an I didn't know that. I mean, I'd read some of that, and I knew that government funded some of the the big pharma analogy or comparison is pretty interesting. It would probably be similar to that. Take a break. Back in a few. I'm going to keep talking about this on the other side, but it's kind of an interesting conversation, how much we spend in national defense contracts. It's about $900 billion a year, and the person that I bumped into has spent a lot of time in that world. And they hear some of the things I say, and they're like, yeah, you're right. But where do you go find the next, you know, uh, nuclear sub-manufacturer? I mean, if somebody burns your hamburger, you don't go back. You find another burger joint to to cook you a hamburger. Good luck finding, you know, nuclear sub-manufacturers on on every street corner. They never meet a budget. They never meet a deadline. But we continue to do business because there's not a lot of, of options out there. Speaking of options, the people of Michigan had an option. Could they vote for... A Republican? Yes. Could they vote for a Democrat? Yes. One of the first, I think, true, I don't know, reflections of where the electorate are, Rev, was in Michigan. Had a Republican primary and a Democrat primary. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Um, Jeff, what do we make or what do, what, what is the narrative of the Michigan turnout in the Republican and Democrat primaries?
10: So good morning. I mean, as expected, former President Donald Trump he he won Michigan uh, the primary last night uh, and continues to charge forward toward the GOP presidential nomination. I mean, the race called within moments of polls closing uh, last night, with Trump getting about 68% to Nikki Haley's 28%, and uh, you know putting even more pressure on on Haley, who who lost to Trump in every other primary contest. So. I think that's where the focus is. When does she drop out? Does she drop out? What happens to her money? We, we, we know that uh, you know some major donors have, have, have also dropped out in terms of funding. You're in politics, or at least you were in politics. You know when the money runs out, you're done. Uh, we'll see. Um, and President Biden, again, as expected, won the Democratic primary in Michigan, though, Um, As as some some major news outlets are are reporting in their headlines, he was embarrassed last night by the uncommitted voters uh, who were increasingly upset over his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. We're talking about Arab-Americans mostly centering around Dearborn. Um, And and so the president garnered about 76 percent of the vote. Uncommitted still amassed over 16 percent. I mean, that's well over 22 uh, – about 22,000. Uh, voters in, in Michigan, Democratic voters. So, what does that mean for the general election? Time will tell. But look, I mean, you know, we're going to be done talking about this here in, in, in you know, three, two, one, and we're going to be on onto the Super Tuesday election, and uh, we'll find out what it means. But it boiled, to, to boil it down, uh, it, it's 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 just part of the process where we're going to, into the elimination phase. What, when does it? You know, when does when does something happen? Who knows? But um, you know, I I can tell that Nikki Haley has spent about eighty million dollars on on her campaign, and and Trump has spent very little.
0: Jeff, what do we make of, or is there anything to be made of, seven hundred and thirty nine total Democrat votes cast? Trump gets seven hundred fifty six thousand as the Republican winner. Anything to make about excitement, enthusiasm, turnout?
10: I mean, I think I think he just look at his rallies. You know, it's it's night and day between enthusiasm between his between people who support President Trump and and you know people who support Nikki Haley, uh, or even President Biden. It's it's a different it's a different vibe. If you've ever been to one of his rallies, and he's still he's still packing them in. So um, look, I mean, yeah, there's there's an enthusiasm for people who want uh, cheaper gas. There's an enthusiasm for people who want their food prices back. Um, and, and, and so, you know, but how does that translate into votes when, you know, at the end of the day, where, where it counts in the general election, you know, we'll, we'll find out there's, there's so many more shoes that are going to be dropping uh, before the, at least, I think most people believe that, um, before we all head to the polls, this this, uh, this November.
0: Yeah, Jeff. And I have been to a rally. It reminded me of NASCAR meets SEC football meets <laughs> world wrestling federation. Yeah. I mean, it, it was yeah. a lot of fun, but kind of crazy. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. I appreciate that, my man. Um, yeah. You know what, what to make of that. Uh, like Jeff said, three, two, one. Now it's on to to super Tuesday. I'm going to go back and I don't know if we lost the call or not. I apologize for that. We had a predetermined, uh, commitment to Fox news to make sure Jeff Bonasso got in and explain from a national perspective what happened in Michigan yesterday and last night, or yesterday uh, evening, what is the best way to secure our nation? I mean, fundamentally, that's what we're talking about. I mean, I, I'm one that believes, wow, I mean, if we are in a, a dangerous era, and I think Barron said it more eloquently than I can, I think China is a geopolitical adversary unlike this former Soviet Union. I mean, the Soviet Union would have been a sledgehammer. China is a laser. I mean, it's, uh, it's a very meticulous, and a, uh, it's got an economic effect, an impact on the world, uh, you know, the world for whatever reason. I mean, I understand the reason. It's not whatever reason, cheap goods. I mean, the world decided in 2001 to legitimize China as a trade partner by giving preferred nation status and including China, into the World Trade Organization, I don't know how they squared that up. I mean, they talk about human rights and human dignity and fairness and equality and treating the worker as the worker deserves to be treated. And they, you know, allow China into the World Trade Organization. I mean, that just—that's cheap goods. I mean, that's all that is. If a company's paying, you know, a a, a laborer a wage and a a little bit of a pension and some health care and some time off, and somebody in China agrees to build that same widget with a 13-year-old, no no human rights considered, no labor laws considered, no worker safety considered. Um, I mean, they're going to do it cheaper. And the world said, basically, in 2004, 2001, we're cool with that. And, I mean, I, I guess that led to cheaper prices and cheaper goods. Uh, it led to a mass exodus, of, you know, even an accelerated exodus of our, of our deindustrialization. And what, I mean, NAFTA started that. But I think, you know, Instead of apologizing for NAFTA being bad trade policy, they kind of doubled down and, and legitimized China as basically the world's manufacturing plant. I mean, that's what China's turned into. It is the world's manufacturing plant. Let me say it's the Western world's manufacturing plant because Eastern, I mean, Eastern Europe doesn't consume a lot. I mean, it's uh, Russia and a couple of other. But anyway, um, what is the best way? To defend America against an economic and geopolitical threat like China, I mean that's above my pay grade. I know enough to be dangerous, but I think there's a very serious conversation to be had about what's the best way. Now, now, Joe or Jay, Jay uh, said, you know it's unfair that the taxpayer subsidizes the majority of research done that leads to better weaponry. And once the, the taxpayer pays Raytheon to design the best uh, Javelin missile, I'm just using that, Javelin missile or, or, you know, F-16 fighter jet, whatever, a stealth bomber, what Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, uh, you know, those that build things, I have no comprehension of how to begin building. Um, and it's complicated. It's a very sophisticated business. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's national security. I mean, it's keeping America safe, keeping America prominent on uh, the world stage. That's an awesome responsibility, but could we do it cheaper? I mean, could we, let me say this. Could we do it more efficiently? Isn't that kind of what we're asking ourselves? Mm-hmm. I mean, how much waste is really – in other words, are we – we're spending $890 billion. We're spending about $900 billion a year. What are we really getting for the 900000000000 billion? Isn't that kind of the question we're asking ourselves? How much bloat, how much waste, how much fraud, how much abuse is in that? So Jay is saying – that the taxpayer subsidizes uh, a Raytheon. I mean, they're an easy target. You know, Raytheon builds this weapon, and it's the latest greatest, and it keeps America safe, and nobody has anything close or remotely near its capacity or capabilities. But Raytheon has the, the intellectual property. I mean, the design, the blueprint, the sophisticated models, that, that, you know, how it performs and and why it performs the way it does, the wing tilt and the, you know, how it's delivered and the 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 warhead associated with I mean, I'm getting into things I don't know anything about, but I, I do know the finance side of it. And all of a sudden, Raytheon says, okay, this is the best missile we've ever built, and the American government buys into that being the best missile that's ever been built, and they order 100 of those missiles because they're the latest and greatest, but they order it from kind of a single source provider. Well, I mean, what's the price when there is no competition? (laughs) What if the taxpayer owned the design? Because once again, they paid for a lot of, what if the taxpayer owned the design and the government put that latest greatest weapon out for bid and six companies had the capacity to build those hundred latest greatest missiles What would the price be? Well, I mean, I think anybody with an understanding of commerce would say it'd be cheaper. I mean, if six people have the capacity and ability to build it, it's not, you know, I mean, I don't want to say bid rigging, but in essence, that's kind of what it is. You know, this is the missile we want. Only one company builds it. So we're going to have to pay whatever that company wants to. And what do you think the nature of the company is going to be? I mean, are they in the business to be altruistic and, and giving and charitable? No, they're in the business to make a profit as much as they possibly can. So the question we're asking ourselves is how much of that sort of antica behavior is the reason we spend $890 billion on defense? I mean, imagine this, guys. Imagine if you were one of 25 or 30 companies that divvied up nearly a trillion dollars every year. I mean, we've argued a trillion is an almost supernatural number. I mean, that's the only way I know to comprehend it. My iPhone is magic. So I say, oh, it's Pentium chips and micro Now No, it's magic. It's magic to me, dude. I don't know microprocessors. I don't know pentium chips. It's magic to me. I mean, the weaponry is, is a little bit like that. Well, uh, you know, you gotta, we got lift, and we got thrust, and we got warheads, and we got propulsion. And we Okay, just end up where it says on the ticket, man. I mean, I, I don't know how we get there. Just, you know, build big, bad bombs to keep us safe. And I guess we got to spend a trillion dollars a year to get that. But imagine being one of the 20 or 30 companies that divvy up a trillion dollars a year. I mean, I know it's not, but it is. It's $900 billion. Let's say it this way. You ready? 90% of a trillion dollars (laughs) that we divvy up every single year. Not a one-time apportionment, not not a one-time appropriation. Every year, 25, 30 companies fight over nearly a trillion dollars. How good a deal is that? I mean, how good a job could that be? And that's why they're able to hire spouses of members of Congress to do jobs they probably have no comprehension
1: of. Let's go to the phone. Here's Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. You're on.
11: Uh, Good morning, fellas. Enjoying the show this morning. Uh, One thing about your national sales tax, uh, your proposal, the 1%, the 5%, uh, is I think the fact that you're going to hear the folks say, well, the, the, the low income people spend all their money, therefore that kind of thing will be regressive and then they'll have to do all kind of special exceptions and whatever, so it'll become complicated. But what I'm really calling about is the uh, your current comments about the defense and defense spending. If you look at the uh, financial reports of the United States government, you'll find out that the Defense Department can't even uh, uh, suffer an audit. They cannot even satisfy an auditor so that's there's a tremendous amount of waste i think that goes on in the defense department and inefficiencies and of course you're coming at it from one angle but if they could somehow be held accountable and audit these audit these things uh we might get a little clearer understanding what's going on thank you sam i
0: I wonder this and i don't have the answer how many are single source contracts i mean i wonder how many defense when, when the u.s department of defense Issues a, um, an RFI wonder how many of those go to how many different companies? I mean, when I built truck beds for a living and the city of Columbia was buying truck beds, I knew I was not the only vendor they were sending that RFI to, I mean, RFP request for proposal. I knew that they were sending that to my eight or 10 competitors in South and North Carolina. Now we got some advantage being in state, you know, we got a 3% preferential treatment being an in-state vendor. But, but I, I had to consider when I priced those truck beds, the, the state of South Carolina is buying 150 truck beds over the next eight months, and we want, you know, 10 delivered a month for the next guy, uh, you know, and you, you look at the contract, comes at a bid package, you kind of look through the bid, you put your best number on there, but you know when you mail it back that there are six or seven or eight other people who do what you do who are mailing it back. What, what would my price be yeah. if I knew? You have to be competitive Yeah, I because mean, what, it is competitive. But what would the price be if I knew that I was the only <laughs> one in the you. state of South Carolina <laughs> was sending that bid package to? I mean, it'd be 20% higher. It just would. I mean, I would not sharpen my pencil. And, and I get national security is different than truck bodies. National security is different than radio. Act. I get all that. I understand that. But how do we get better at getting bang for our buck? Isn't that kind of what we're all after? I mean, the majority of conservatives, I mean, I don't want to starve the military. I mean, I I want the military to be well-funded. I want it to be, you know, the the best there is in the world. But are we unnecessarily spending a couple of hundred billion million dollars a year, not billion, I mean a couple of hundred billion dollars a year just because? I think that would be an interesting, I mean, if they don't meet deadlines, they don't meet budgets, and there's no incentive to meet deadlines or meet budgets, how are we not wasting enormous amounts of money providing for national security take a break back in a few 843 937 is our
1: number so in your days of truck body manufacturing you actually would uh, bid on some of these government jobs
0: i would bid on a lot of government jobs and i would attempt to rig every one of those government bids <laughs> oh, over a period of time. really well i mean it was just yeah. In certain municipalities or counties that liked your product state would like your product or not like your product and certain things you knew you had an advantage in and you get to know some of the people that made these decisions? I mean, it's an open bid, but but you can create language in the process that says, I'll give an example our be, our beds were heavier. I mean that you know a lot of people fall weight because if your bed's heavy, that's less payload. and there's kind of a balancing point of how heavy the bed can be and, and durability, you know can you make it light and durable? That, that would have been because payload I mean, the truck can't weigh but so much loaded. so if the bed weighs a lot, then, then you can't carry as much payload. So it's always a struggle. I mean, we went through a phase of aluminum beds. I mean, they're light, but they're not durable enough. And the wells break, and the, the the aluminum isn't strong enough. Anyway, um, so we had a certain vendor, certain counties, or two or three that liked our product because they lasted longer, and they would draw in the specs. It must be three inch channel cross member on twelve inch center with three sixteenth floor. Well, I mean that that's in to some degree that's bid rigging because we were kind of the only manufacturer in the state that used cross members on twelve inch center, three inch channel iron, and a three sixteenth one piece floor. I mean that gave us an advantage. Now now I think we've earned the right to rig that bid. <laughs> but I mean in, in a weird way, that's bid rigging. I mean that's that's what it is, but I think we you know our, our product performed well for those vendors. Now we couldn't say the beds have to be made. You know, six miles from the PD River, because we tried, <laughs> and they got. <laughs> okay, we, but sure. you see where I'm headed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's degrees of bid rigging. There's degrees of um, complexity in the ordeal, and and you got to believe if it happens in the truck body manufacturing world, where a truck bed is thousands of dollars, imagine what it's like in the military industrial complex world, where things are millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I've got no idea how that world works, but somebody who does says we're spending about a quarter of a trillion dollars, a quarter of a trillion dollars unnecessarily because it's just not efficient. We could do so much better and provide the best defense on the planet. Let's go to the phone.
1: Jim and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning.
12: Morning, gentlemen. So Ken, I'm hearing you talk about um, the bidding process and it, immediately brings to mind the directed energy weapons um, part of the military. And recently, uh, the military said, we want a better laser, because despite what you know the mainstream would say, bullets and bombs, they're old school, we're in the Star Trek world now. So the military puts out a bid and says, Hey, look, we got three contractors we're going to award this bid to. You three are going to fight it out. And the three have three totally different designs for a solid state laser to shoot, you know, planes down, to shoot rockets and mortars down. And they're going to look at those three different technologies and then they're going to decide which one gets the contract but the problem really isn't even in the bidding system in my personal opinion the problem is china because if we invest our taxpayer money in defense contractors who design the latest greatest widget and they have the best hackers on the planet and don't have to do any of that r&d and can simply steal the designs and then hand it over to their Manufacturing complex, then we've literally just, you know, shot ourselves in the foot. And that has happened with the Joint Strike Fighter, most famously, with the NATO um, software that basically runs all NATO military branches. We literally sold that software to China, our greatest geopolitical foe. So as long as there's Private industry willing to sell out, or have lack security that cannot protect that intellectual property—it's all a moot point.
0: So, what should the punishment be for a military defense contractor who allows that to happen? I mean, we don't have public hangings anymore. But what should be the what should be the penalty for anybody on that list of military contractors approved by the U.S. government, if indeed that were to happen?
12: Well, of course, they'll always, um, you know, cry foul and say, look, you know, we did the best we could. But that's not (laughs) Uh, good enough. Yeah, exactly. It's not good enough when you're talking about we're not talking about Hillary's freaking emails here. We're talking about um, just recently the hypersonic missiles. Um, it, It was claimed that the hypersonic missiles from that Russia and China currently possess were stolen from a program that was defunded by Obama, and because it went into kind of you know uh, into limbo for a little while, those designs were stolen by the Chinese and the Russians. So this has been a reoccurring theme for the past twenty years. I could I could cite hundreds of these. There, the problem. I with wish that you. Is, I don't
0: want you to do that because you're freaking me out yeah. now. Just citing. <laughs> A hypersonic missile. Yeah. So what you're basically saying, Jim, is the taxpayers fund all this R and D. All the R and D is done by very able and capable engineers and aerospace designers and all these all these people in that world that I know nothing about. And the Chinese can hack into a a computer system that allows them to access all the R and D that we've done over all the years and build a duplicate plane, and instead of putting the red, white, and blue on it, put the Chinese flag
12: on it? The Joint Strike Fighter literally rolled out, like they 3D printed it, and they rolled it down the street, and it is exactly the same plane. And that was supposed to be a NATO plane to to, to go across all NATO countries. It was $380, $335 billion a plane. And yes... They just stole the designs, and then they literally, right in our face, rolled it down the street with a big red star on it. Wow.
0: I would say thank you for the info, Jim, but I'm not very grateful that you've, um, <laughs> you freaked my audience out or freaked our audience out this morning. Thank you for the insight. Thank you for the call. Be careful what you ask for on, uh, on Wake Up, Carol. I see kind of an interesting, and, and I guess, I mean, and once again, I am no foreign policy expert by any stretch. But when I think of Russia, I think brute force. I mean, I I just think of a big rhinoceros in a zoo. And I mean, you better get out of my way. We're big and we're bad and we'll knock anything in our way down. When I think China, I think very sophisticated. I think very technologically advanced and very computer driven. So when Jim says, Russia didn't steal it, but China did, I'm like, of course they did. But I mean, they're not the, the, the rhinoceros of the bull in the, in the China shop. They're sophisticated, if not more, than we are. And I think we've got to accept that as, as reality. And, and that really goes back to Trump. I mean, if you want to look at Trump, and one thing I think he's done, and you want to know the force of a candidate, when a candidate changes both political parties' disposition on a nation, I mean that, that, and, and Trump really said from day one, I don't trust China. I mean, I don't trust China. I mean, you know, Russia, people wanted him to be consumed by Russia and Putin. And I don't think Trump was ever consumed by Russia and Putin. I mean, I think he sees them as what they are. But I think Trump, and I don't want to say he's a political genius, but I think one of the genius moves he made, intentionally or not, was to kind of not be as consumed or obsessed with Russia, but rather China. And he treats China uniquely different or believes America should treat China uniquely different than any other geopolitical adversary maybe we've ever had. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's
13: go there.
1: Michael in Johnsonville. Hi, you're on.
13: Hey, Ken. What's up, Rev? How y'all doing? Morning. Good. How are you? Hey, doing good man. Look here, uh Ken, I I have to agree with the caller earlier. Um I'm a little bit I'm a, he kind of beat me to the punch a little bit, but I'm a little bit on the on the fence here because um when I think of national security i mean i I want to be secure, you want to be secure, you know we want the United States to be secure, so in one sense, I see the p- i see what you're trying to say as far as saving money, but on the other sense, you know I don't want just any company. Joe Blow Company out there having plans to make, whether it's a missile, whether it's a jet, whatever, and have those plans, I know they would be vetted. You know, a good question would be, you asked earlier, what would be the penalty if, you know, they got caught? Um, You know, could that be uh, losing contracts from the government? They can't bid on them anymore. But one of the things that bothers me more than anything is, you know, I'm in, um, I have my own business. And uh, we've dealt with Shaw Air Force Base a lot of times in the past. And one of the things that always bothered me was back in, the, in like 2000, they had what they called the impact card. Um, I'm not really sure what it's called now, but at the time it was called impact and it was like $2,500 per card. And literally we would have different squadrons at the at Shaw would call. They might would order – something and put it on that impact card and just say, hey, we've got to spend 2500 or we don't get it next month. Um, and sometimes they would pick the stuff up. Sometimes they wouldn't. It would just be a fact of I got to spend this money. And to me, you know, I would almost rather reward you for saving money than to reward you more money for blowing money. It, does that make any sense? To Makes you guys?
0: perfect sense. But you live in the business world well, like gonna, I do.
13: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I get RF RFPS a lot, and I understand dealing with state and local governments and and stuff like that. Um, you tend to kind of pack it in a little bit because of maybe because of that. But yeah, it, it just it, it seems like we could fudge on some things. But when it comes to natural um, your national security and stuff like that with fighter jets and bombs and whatnot, I don't know if I would just want to turn it over to any Joe Blow company, and I'm going to jump off and just take a listen. Fair enough. I mean, that, that's that's
0: a very valid point. You want to make sure the missiles don't blow up in the chamber. I mean, they go where they're supposed to go and do what they're supposed
1: to do. And you want the secrets to be secure.
0: Sure, and and here's an interesting proposal. What percent of the 890, well, let me say it, what percent of the 90% of a trillion dollars is spent on securing the world. I mean, what is our national security budget? And what is the excess to make sure that we can defend some of these NATO nations? I, I just, I think there's a very, and, and once again, there, there's beauty in making things appear to be more complicated than they really are. I mean, if I looked in the books of the Defense Department, I mean, I think I've got enough business savvy to kind of ask some legitimate questions. Um, I'm just, what I think we've done, and I don't think Michael did this, but I think what we've been conditioned to do is say, well, I'm not questioning that defense budget. Because at the end of the day, that's how we preserve our, our safety and security and 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 anybody that questions defense, you're you're a pacifist or you're a you know, you're a you're a Putin sympathizer. No. I mean, I don't think those have to be mutually exclusive of one another. I mean, I think I can be concerned about the world around us and accept that Putin is a bad actor, but but not want to spend an extra two hundred billion dollars a year preparing for what happens if Russia does X or what happens if China does, does Y. I, I'm just arguing that we're spending nearly a trillion dollars a year every single year. And from what I'm told, very few of those people who receive the benefit of nearly a trillion dollars a year meet budgets or schedules. And as the most prosperous nation on the planet, it seems we could do better than that. I mean, whatever the model is, I mean, if the model spends a trillion dollars a year and the model doesn't require contractors to meet budgets or, or 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 deadlines then we need to address that but I mean, there's got to be a better way to do it but i think what michael is saying is that i don't want just i mean i don't want the guy that that makes dumpsters in his in his backyard building missiles i don't want him bidding on you know equipping the men and women who serve in our armed forces that's not what i'm suggesting but i'm but i'm not accepting 890 billion dollars as the magic number. I'm just not. I mean, what what is the number? I don't know. I don't have any guy. You want to be real radical? Let's privatize national security. I'll offer this as a kind of a counter proposal. Is it more important I mean, that the, the government builds bridges across the Mississippi River? I mean, how do we vet the engineering and construction companies that build those bridges? I mean, I, you know, in my day-to-day life, you know what I need to work? Those bridges. Those bypasses, those, the, the, the air traffic controllers, I mean, I put my life in their hands a lot more than I do worried about a China invasion or, or you know, Russia crossing uh, the border of a NATO nation. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that, but but I do drive across bridges and on roads, and I get in elevators, you know, <laughs> that, that are, you know, 25 floors off the ground. I mean, to some degree, we trust the government to oversee some of those realities, um, I mean, I don't know a non-government agency that's ever built a bridge. I mean, I guess some wealthy person in one of these moats or whatever. And I mean, I've seen private islands and, you know, here's the only way you access this billionaire's home. I mean, I get that. That's very unique, very different. Um, not the norm. But but, are, do we apply the same standard to people who build bridges that we drive our families across as we do people who build you know, missiles and grenade launchers and fighter jets. I I don't know. I just don't think we should accept $890 billion as the number. And if you don't accept $890 billion as the number, you don't support national security. I'll go on the record. I'll be the first to say this: I support national security as much as anybody. I'm thankful for the men and women who serve in our armed forces. I'm thankful for the people who have dedicated their lives to build the weaponry necessary to continue to make us you know the safest nation on the planet I don't buy the 890 billion I don't buy that number take a break back in a few eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number what is the number to keep America safe and what above that number are we spending to police the world I mean is there is there a hard fast number When when people meet at the Pentagon do they sit down and say okay Here's what we need to make sure we're not invaded by another nation. I mean, here's what we need to keep Americans in their homeland safe and secure. But here's what we need to do all these other things to, to, to geopolitically advance our agenda and to force our will on the rest of the world. Because that's what we do, guys. I mean, that, that's... I'm, I'm not going to be an American apologist by any stretch, but, but I'm not going to say, I'm not going to be blindly loyal to the American empire and what its tendencies have been in basically forcing its will, usually by letting them know militarily what we can or cannot do. Um, what is the rest of the world? Here's an interesting hypothetical. What would the rest of the world, what would the NATO member nations do if Trump announced in January of 2025 that he's cutting defense spending by twenty percent. But they they know much more than I do. <laughs> Think about that. I mean the 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 prime minister of England, uh, the president of France. I mean they know much more than I do about you know what's in the kitty for them. What what are the Americans spending to basically make sure the Western world has its you know its safeguard or is protected against some of Eastern Europe or even uh, some of the Asia conflict, the the um the Taiwan China situation that we're feigning the flames of trying to make or trying to provoke it to be in (laughs) more, more of a global issue than maybe it needs to be. Uh, but what would the Western world's reaction be if Trump announced in, I mean, if he and his defense secretary, whoever that he or she is, if Trump and a defense secretary to be named stood at a podium in January of 2025 and said, enough of the American empire, enough of NATO freeloading, we're cutting our defense budget by 25%, and we're applying that money toward the federal debt. What would NATO member nations do in reaction and response
1: to that? (laughs) Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Hello, Nick.
12: Ken,
14: I had this similar discussion before, and it made me think, do we, being the superpower of the world, do we have a moral obligation to be the benevolent
0: king, but don't you have a moral obligation to not spend money you don't have? All I, right, listen, I, I, I understand that. I, I'm not so sure you'll you accept they have me. to be in concert one with another. There's a moral obligation that we have accepted, whether we like it or not, to be the world's right. police.
14: Well, I, well, um, but does that make in, in in doing that? Does it make us safe? I mean, I think that's the argument. It
0: makes us safer. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't disagree that us spending enormous amounts of money on weaponry we'll never use makes it less likely that somebody takes on the big, bad US of A. I buy that. But but are I mean, we creating a more complicated national security risk by putting it on the tab? Well, the, the, the
14: problem is, is, Are we going to allow the missile company just to sell their excess, you know, to have a sale and let's sell off all this extra stuff to Israel or whomever? I mean, the problem is, is every missile that's made, we own, correct?
0: Whether we shoot it or not.
14: (laughs) Right. You know, I mean, it's not like McDonald's where you can do just in time. And they make the Nick
0: hang on, we got to take a hard there. break top of the hour, but i want I want to continue this conversation on the other side, back at a few, last hour of this Wednesday morning when Trump wins in November, appoints me Secretary of Defense, Nick's going to be my top lieutenant, and we'll decide <laughs> what exactly is the amount we need to spend to defend America uh here and abroad. Nick floor is yours interesting kind of an interesting debate, and nobody's saying i mean, I don't think you're saying I know exactly what to do, and I'm certainly not saying I know exactly what to do, but it's it's kind of an interesting debate. About things we are speculating on,
14: I just don't know how you kind of keep your secret secret if you don't own it all. You know what I'm saying? I mean, how so do you, so
0: you would be in favor because I think I would. After some of our our conversation this morning, I would be in favor of the government maintaining the right to the intellectual property, and I'm talking about the design, you know, um, the blueprints, if you will, in mine and your world, the blueprints of the latest, greatest fighting weaponry. I want those trade secrets to be in the hands of the government. Uh, You know, I don't know that I trust the government, but Raytheon would have a profit motive to sell some of that to China, sell some of that to Russia, sell some of that to Venezuela.
14: Right. I mean, even with the Oppenheimer thing, they had a spy. Russia
0: had a spy there. Yeah, with I mean, the Manhattan you have Project. To deal with that, yeah. I mean, and that was all military-driven. So what? You know, uh, let, let's play this military, out, Nick. Yeah. Let, let, you, you're real world, and re, you're real doing the real world like I am. So let's say that we can't get that done. That Raytheon invents all these crazy fighting weapons, and we benefit because we have them. But they get to keep the R&D. I mean, it's their property. They made a deal with the government. You don't like it. I don't like it. But what should the punishment or penalty be to Raytheon if somebody hacks into their computer or some employee of theirs goes rogue and trades or sales to the Chinese?
14: Well, I mean, that's why I think it has to be owned by the U.S. government. And those have to be signed, treasonous, you know, classified properties. I mean... In, in all honesty, they probably need multiple designs in there, and only one of them really works.
0: Kind of I mean, some dumb, yes, yeah, some, some some dummy designs.
14: Yeah, I mean, you just probably just what you need to do. So when it gets act, they don't know which one works. I mean, that's all this espionage and counterterrorism and or counter spy stuff. But, I mean, at some level, I mean, I don't know how do you square it. I mean, how do you protect your secrets if it's not owned by the government?
0: But is it it kind of odd, Nick, that no conversations like this are being had in what I'll call the mainstream media? I mean, you and I are having a very important conversation. You admit you don't know but so much. I admit I don't know but so much. But what about those who know a lot more than we do? Why aren't we pressing them to give us answers to some of these very important questions?
14: Well, because it's my thing, because when you invest in companies that make bullets, you invest in companies that make mandates, you invest in companies that make prosthetics, war is a pretty good deal.
0: Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. And I have told Josh before, and, I, and I've said this over the air, you know, the most lucrative endeavors man has ever known is disease and war. I mean, there have been enormous profits made in disease and in war. And, I mean, in the weirdest way imaginable, I mean, that, that you get into morals and ethics and whatnot, but um, but war is an enormously beneficial endeavor for some. I mean, it's not for me. It's it, it's. I mean, I wish there were no wars. I accept that we're going to have conflict and we're going to have dictators and rogue leaders and bad, bad country. I mean, I, I understand that. I mean, the world's a complicated place and we're going to argue over boundaries and borders especially on a continent like europe where historically we've moved boundaries and borders to the victor go the spoil but but war has been and will always be a lucrative endeavor for some it's not this simple but i listened yesterday to something on one of the major networks and schumer is arguing that we've got to raise the debt ceiling to avoid the next shutdown, period, and we need to send an extra sixty billion to Ukraine, period. And I'm thinking to myself, I mean, just think of the logic behind what he just said. We, we've we've got to raise the debt ceiling to avoid another government shutdown. End of sentence. We got to find an extra sixty billion dollars to send to Ukraine to help them weaken Vladimir Putin and you know, him trying to get the band back. We just don't have, and I, and I really attribute some of this to a lack of integrity-driven media. I mean, I think the journalists are there to ask the hard questions. And I think we, we're, we're not getting that because the media has become an extension of the government status quo. And if you are working at NBC News and Meet the Press is brought to you by Boeing, and the nightly news is brought to you by Pfizer, why do you question the government strategy on war and disease? I mean, why bite off the hand that feeds you? And that's terrible. I mean, it, it, it's propaganda is what it is. And I mean, the media decided at some point, and I get it, and maybe they would not have done this, Rev, if the, if the NBC network were as lucrative as it once was, and I'm talking about before Netflix, before Yahoo, before, I mean, not Yahoo, before uh, Amazon, What's it, Amazon Prime? I think they've got yeah. their streaming service. Oh, yeah. Before Netflix and Amazon, before Google, before uh, YouTube TV and all these, I mean, they, they probably had enough profit that they could do some things that didn't require them to some degree selling their soul. But I get it. I mean, they've got a bottom line. And the bottom line is enhanced by Pfizer advertising. And the bottom line is enhanced by Boeing advertising. When times were really good... They could probably look the CEO at Pfizer and the guys and say, look, man, I mean, we got a lot of questions about this vaccine, but now I I would imagine their profits down. I mean, we know they've laid off thousands of employees, the decentralizing of media, the proliferation, as Obama says, of media. um, It's forced them to be considerate of the bottom line. So you've got a chance to do a deep dive on the vaccine. You also got a chance to lose Pfizer sponsorship. And I think modern news says, I don't want to lose that sponsorship. And I think there are still reporters who are chomping at the bits to go after legitimate news stories. But I think the bottom line gets in the way. I mean, I always found it humorous. Meet the press brought to you by Boeing. I'm going like, what is, I mean, that that doesn't make any sense until you, it does. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Boeing is a military industrial complex behemoth. Politically inclined people watch meet the press. Enough said.
1: Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hi, you're on.
15: Hey, Ken, one thing you do learn when you get in that bid spec business when you sell to the government, you find out if they don't spend the money, they don't get it the next year. So I guess that's the bureaucrat business model that we live in. You talk about the media, and I watched CNN last night, and John King, he's always hunting for votes up there in Michigan. And if you take Trump, I think he had 756,000 votes last night, but they're focused more on Nikki Haley had 294,000. But if you took Trump's number and you added, imagine this, added 2 million to it, he still wouldn't have beat Biden back in 2020. Biden had 2.8 million votes. And I don't know if I'd get excited about Michigan because – You know, all this uh, Arab population stuff, I guarantee you, when Tlaib's on that ballot in November and you can push D in November, you couldn't have just pushed D last night because you had competition between the Democrats. Uh, It's going – and Biden gets his pander bear machine. He'll promise those people everything in the world, and then you're going to have that Democrat turnout and ballot harvest machine. The unions will be out. UAW, they've got major universities. Where is the big house? That's a huge university. So when the media machine, that turn on that fear campaign, you see that January 6th ad, and they'll have Trump, how he wants to ban the Muslims from uh, the whole country, uh, you'll see how that media machine works out and how they make their money. A- Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Eight four three six six
0: one zero nine three seven is our number. I didn't say Michigan's a shoe in I just think Michigan's more winnable than Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. I think Michigan, Arizona, and Nevada are the tickets to the White House for Trump. And I'll stand by my prediction. I think he wins Michigan.
1: Let's go to the phone. Scott in Florence. Hi, Scott. You're on.
16: Good morning, y'all. You know, Ken, I think you missed one other thing when you said, you know, disease and war. Are some of the most profitable things that um that that's out there. You missed one, and that's politicians. And I know their salaries don't show it, but it's awfully funny that a president that can go in can come out being a millionaire at the end of eight years. And um, I'm not talking about just a millionaire. I'm talking multi-millionaire when they're done. So that, that that's that's another real profitable way. And I tell you, you know, I look around this, and I, you know, I hear the sixty billion dollars we might need to send to Ukraine, and you know, I travel the state of South Carolina, and I also travel all over the. I've been to twenty-seven countries, um, twenty-six states, and um, I have a hard problem with us dropping sixty billion dollars in another country as rough and as 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 unsightly that's some of the things I see here in the United States. And my problem with it is this. Ukraine or no other ally has ever sent a penny to our country for anybody that's homeless or war-struck from going over there and liberating somebody and having to deal with PTSD or our soldiers or anybody who's came back and had to have hard times. And for our government to take our money and send to another country and give it to them for them to fight a war when we're fighting our own battles right here in our own homeland is definitely disappointing. And my biggest thing to all politicians is this, for you to give our taxpayer money, $60 billion to Ukraine. How many times have those politicians walked out of that white house or walked out of their house and saw somebody living in a tent and handed him a penny out of his pocket. And if you can't do that, then you don't need to give our money away to other countries and fight wars when we're fighting our own battles right here in our homeland and you're giving our taxpayer money away that could be helping people here get back on their feet and making this a better country.
0: Thank you, sir. Sounds like a campaign speech, 843 I've often wondered this, and I pester Robert Cahaley a little bit on this. Robert, what if a candidate ran in the Republican primary because I think I'm—I I'm, mean, obviously, I'm more familiar with the Republican primary than I am the Democrat. I don't know what floats their boat. I mean, I, I think I have an idea, but I don't know specifically in the nuance what Democrats are motivated by and biased against. I mean, it's kind of the big government, small government phenomenon. But but I've asked Robert Cahaley many times. Robert, what would an, a, a single issue—I mean, let's break down the single issue that generates the most enthusiasm. What if a candidate ran— as an anti-war candidate, nothing else, nothing else. Um, hey, um, candidate for president, Dave, what do you think of the situation between China and Taiwan? I don't want to have a war. Candidate Dave, what do you think about the defense budget? I don't want to have a war. Candidate Dave, what do you think about the um, the amount of debt we've incurred? I don't want to have a war. Candidate Dave, what do you think about building bridges from, you know, Texas to Oklahoma? I don't want to have a war. I mean, every answer he gives is I don't want to have a war. I'm anti-war. I'm anti-war. I'm anti-war. What if another candidate ran as a balanced budget candidate? What what do you think of Ukraine candidate Dave? I want to balance the budget. What what do you think of um what do you think of the election in Singapore? I want to balance the budget. And 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 I've asked Robert. I said, Robert, what? I mean, how could you poll that? I don't know. You know, exactly, but I'm I'm sure we could come up with some way. <laughs> I mean, I I just wonder what one what one single issue candidate would get the largest share of the Republican base? In other words, candidates don't have opinions on a variety of things. You've got an anti-war candidate and a balanced budget candidate and a kind of an anti-transgenderism candidate, or we could call that kind of a culture warrior. Wonder I mean, and I don't know the answer to this, and Robert Confess, I don't have a clue. What is the one thing out there that, that most would rally around that identify as Republican um, voters. I mean, I don't think it'd be anti—it'd probably be balanced budget. I mean, I think if you're thinking through your responsibility as an American voter and you look in the grand scheme of things, the debt should probably be the most concerning. I mean, the debt should probably be the most alarming. I mean, I don't think we should always care to some degree what happens between Taiwan and China, what happens between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, I don't think you can— Dismiss that and just say, hey, we got enough to say grace over, forget everything abroad. I mean, I'm not, I'm not naive enough to say that, but I, but I think we need hyper-focus on our own country. And, and I think hyper-focusing on our own country requires us to agree that we got to stop spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have. I do know this, that in the Republican primary, if somebody runs on a domestic-oriented agenda and somebody runs with a strong foreign policy, agenda. I mean, one laps the other. I mean, I've seen some polling on domestic issues and foreign policy, and most Republican primary voters today said loudly and proudly, we have spent far too much of our money, our political curiosity about the world around it. I get it's complicated. I get a lot of dots connect to a lot of other dots, but we better come back home and address some of the domestic issues that we have. And I think debt leads in that category. Take a break back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to circle back because David was talking about the Michigan uh, primary. I don't know what to make of the Muslim uncommitted. I mean, those who identify well, those who don't identify, they're Muslims. And they live in Wayne County in the in the Dearborn area. There's a big Muslim community there. I mean, there was a high number of those people who voted uncommitted. I mean, they're not going to fall in love with Trump. I mean, rest assured, they're not going to vote for Donald Trump. They will eventually probably, maybe there's some holdouts. Maybe there's some who say, hey, no, I mean, this this Israeli uh, Hamas situation, the Palestine situation has not been resolved. And in the, uh, I don't know, in the spirit of denial, in the spirit of protest, we're we're not going there. Um, I think Michigan answered a question for me. And, well, I thought I had an answer, but it kind of confirmed my my belief that in the Republican Party, about 70% of Republican voters want Donald Trump to be the nominee. 30% don't want him to be the nominee. Of that 30%, I'm estimating that half will accept him as the nominee, and 15% probably won't ever come around um, does that mean all 15% of them stay home and Trump gets 85%, which would be fairly low of the Republican base come out in November? I don't know. I mean, I think it's all speculation, uh, but that's what you do in some of these campaigns. You kind of model and speculate and prepare for scenario A, scenario B, scenario um, C. But the, the the liberal narrative, the never Trump narrative, that 30% are not going to vote for Donald Trump under any circumstance is just intellectually dishonest. I mean, that, that's just un... I mean, that, there, there's nothing to support that. It's true that 30% of the base would rather somebody else be him, somebody else than him be the nominee. That's not odd. I mean, that, that's not uncommon at all. I mean that, To be honest, it's kind of odd that Trump has done what he's done. But, but you also got to admit that he's an incumbent. I mean, he's a once-elected American president. Twice runs for president, so there's uniqueness there. And I love these people that say, "Well, I mean, this leads me to, you know." I mean, I'm sure of this, and I'm no. I think there's so much we are unsure of. I mean, we're following a COVID election. We've got a guy who ran and won, ran and lost, running again. We, we've got data and numbers, and we can spend those data and or those data and numbers. He's running against an historically weak candidate. I mean, I don't think anybody can argue that Biden is not a weak candidate. He is an unbelievably weak candidate. Weak candidate, deeply flawed candidate. Are, are the flaws fair? Fair comes in October. I mean, it is what it is. The media has convinced, and some have convinced themselves, that he's unacceptable. He's too irreverent. He's too bombastic. He's too uh, out of—he's um, of, uh, too unpresidential you You're entitled to believe that i've kind of I've kind of landed here. I'm not in charge of the campaign I'm not in charge of the Republican turnout machine but but I would begin focusing on people that I think I could turn into Trump voters exclusive of the never trumpers I mean, that there's a certain commitment they've made to themselves and their their social standing and their peers and Uh, it's a little bit like a vegetarian. Somebody texted me earlier and said, you know, a vegan isn't really a vegan unless he or she tells you they're a vegan. You know, you go out and eat with this person a hundred times, they never eat protein. They always eat salads with no poultry, no fish, no steak, no animal protein. I mean, you don't need to tell me you're a vegan. I've kind of figured that out on my own. But, But most, when you go to a restaurant the first time, not the hundredth time, the first time you'll order a steak or a burger, whatever, and they'll order a salad. And after they order the salad, they got to lean in and tell you they're a vegan. And you know, I don't care if you're a vegan or not. I mean, I'm not, so I'm eating animal protein. You eat whatever you've got to eat to keep you happy, nourished, and, and I guess content with yourself. Um, There's a little bit of that in this Trump phenomenon. It's become kind of a badge of honor in certain circles to publicly swear your allegiance to being a never-Trumper. And you got to remind people, even when he wins, even when he wins in South Carolina, even when he wins in in Michigan, I'm still one of the few, the proud, not the Marines, but rather the (laughs) never-Trumpers. And, and, and you know, to each his own. I mean, to each his own. I'm not bothered. I was at a meeting last night. I never go anywhere in the evenings, but I got invited for a little roundtable. And two in particular are never-Trumpers. They're friends of mine. They're good friends of mine, and they're just, they're solidly in that camp, and and they'll tell you they're not voting for Trump under any circumstance imaginable, and I'm like, okay, I mean, you're my friend. I don't want to ruin a friendship arguing about Cheeto Jesus. I mean, he's going to be gone in, a, in, in five or six months or five years, one or the other. I mean, he exits stage right, and we move on from there, and I'm not going destroy your friendship over a controversial political figure. But in the name of winning elections, I think we are better all focusing on blue dog Democrats, ah, low propensity independents, the casual Seinfeld watcher than we are the never-Trumper. I mean, I, 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 there's going to be a conversion rate. I just don't think there's enough bang for our buck. I think if you do all this anti-never-Trump outreach, it's just you can fend, you can spend time better attracting independents some of the blue dog reagan democrats and you know
1: there is an anti-biden element within the democrat vote sure but
0: but i you know and that, that's exactly right and that's where i'm headed some of these democrat leaning independents some I mean, of the you know they they're the working class some I mean, of the believe it or not they're still working class democrats there are a lot of working class democrats african american males hispanic males to some degree hispanic females but not anywhere near like the male vote, um, the the non-college educated white low propensity voter. I mean, there's still four and a half million, from what I'm hearing in these seven states. I think there's more fruit. I think that's lower hanging fruit than trying to sit down in a, in a room full of never Trump opinion leaders and convince them to give him one more chance. Um, now, I do believe this: if Trump continues to listen to his strategist, some of those will soften. Some of that never Trump, because he's not been anywhere near as bombastic. I mean, he, he, one of the people at the table last night admitted, I mean, you reluctantly, but admitted, no, they've run a good campaign. I mean, they, they've run a good, and I tried to share some of the insight I had uh, from what I've gathered and what I've heard, uh, you know, in, in the public and, and not so public domain. is you know, these two strategists agreed to take the job if it be less of a family affair, and it's been much less of a family affair. And, and one of the never-Trumpers yesterday said, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, it's obvious they are more um, diligent. They are more methodical. They are less off the cuff than they were in 16 and 20. And at the end of the day, whether you like good strategists or not, whether you think they're worth their money or not, these two are earning their keep. It's obvious to me. But, but I've run for office, probably less obvious to those who have not. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 661 0937. It's always exciting when you add a sponsor. It's even more exciting when you add a sponsor who's a friend and a local business person. It's someone whose family has been around here a long uh, The word entrenched, that's the kind of way you say an old and, and been around for, <laughs> for, a, for a long time. Uh, Chase Howard is with us, and Chase and his family have agreed to be a sponsor on Wednesday. We came up with Wash Me Wednesday, Scrubby's Car Wash. And Chase and I go back to the good old convenience store days. These guys helped me. Brand a convenience store in a, in a town with no stoplight And we've uh, maintained a, a good and trusting friendship I'd call Chase, what's the price of gas? And he'd say, don't buy it this morning, but the afternoon And anyway, uh, I, I don't want to go in it there, There's a podcast in there somewhere But, um, exactly. but welcome aboard Thank you and, and, and thank you, genuinely thank you a lot um, I see these car washes to begin with I'm, oh, I mean, there's no way to make money in, in a car wash business But they are jamming I mean, they they are, I mean, there are cars lined up everywhere trying to get into Scrubby's car washing.
17: No doubt about it. Uh, It's one of the highest, fastest growing industries, I'd say, in the United States. You know, we talked about this previously, but uh, the private equity boys have gotten into it now. And, you know, when they show up, something's something's cooking. But uh, it's a technology-driven industry these days. The improvements in technology have gotten to where we can actually clean the car better and faster than you guys can clean your car. Now, Rev, if it took you an hour, you could out-clean me probably on a car wash, but in three or four minutes, I don't think you can beat me. Yeah. And,
0: and Rev's hours worth $1,000 yeah. right. no, in, in least, the market of ideas. At least, yeah. so, so the thing that I like <laughs> being associated with you guys, other than our friendship, is local. Right. I mean, you're talking about private capital. You're talking about hedge funds. talking about, you know, money managers and whatnot. You guys are from here, grew up here. PD region, South Carolina is your home. Um, You're competing with those. And and I just think local people need to give local business the benefit of the doubt.
17: And that's what we're all about. And it's very well said, Ken. We, We are a locally owned and family business. We've been in existence since the 1940s at Chase Oil Company. Scrubbies is kind of a a division of the oil company that we started 20-some-odd years ago. And my brother Charles and I, are our number one goal is to give back to the community. And so we're blessed with what we're building in this uh, network of car washes across the PD area. So we've got locations all the way up to Lumberton, North Carolina, down to the coast. We're all up and down the coastal parts of myrtle beach down to georgetown we were over in hartsville now and now we're in florence we're expanding our footprint to manning and Dillon and some of these other places but it's it's business driven but in the end charles and i have a, a, a extreme desire to give back to the community and so we're we're big supporters of all the, the, the local high schools you know we get involved in the fundraising aspects of these different uh smaller cities and that's what it's all about for us and so we're we're back in Florence now, and we've got this site open. It's our first uh, full-size tunnel in Florence. We're excited about it, and we're excited to get involved. In
0: okay, the, the other day, I'm going home because mm-hmm. you, you're, you're your latest addition is close to where, to where I live, mm-hmm. and there's a golf cart park there. Yes. And I said, damn, somebody's washing a golf cart? I <laughs> yeah. Mean, but that's not the case. There's a promotion. Correct. That you guys are coming back to giving back to the community. There's this really cool golf cart that you guys are in the process of giving away.
17: Classic example. So this is our hometown and we wanted to do something really big, something not seen before and something unusual. So we came up with the idea of giving away a golf cart to our scrub club membership. So the biggest attractive thing about our car wash is the unlimited monthly wash club. Uh, prices. I don't want to interrupt you, but yeah. it's kind of the Netflix model. It is. I
0: mean you watch all you want to watch, you can wash all you want to watch for a certain amount every month.
17: A flat fee. And so our prices start at nineteen ninety nine and they go all the way up to forty four ninety nine for our top unlimited club membership. But for every person that is in the wash club by Friday, we've been doing this for three months. You have an opportunity to be in the drawing for this golf cart. Now to add sugar on it, we dropped the price of our wash club to nine ninety nine. So, and this has been going on for three months, and we've got a lot of people participating. But you can join our wash club for nine ninety nine by Friday, and you will be in the or by Thursday, I should say. The drawing is going to be Friday morning, but you will be in the drawing for an opportunity to win this golf cart. It's a fifteen thousand dollar golf cart. I think it's a gas electric. It's nice combo, which I was like, wow, do we really need to, but we're glad to doing it. We're, we, it is a top shelf thing. I've got all kinds of people asking about it. How we, you know, I'm being offered bribes on the side and none of that's going on. Uh, <laughs> we are simply going to draw this thing on Friday morning to see what happens.
0: And, and, and it's adding jobs to our economy. Yes. I mean, you, you guys have added jobs. I mean, they, these are serious people doing serious things. Uh, you know, working at the car wash. I mean, I'm going back to my age, you know, you know, yep. working at the car wash was a song back in the day, but I never imagined I'd see a car wash as automated as the ones you guys have put
17: in. It's a phenomenal uh, event to go and witness this. I mean, we have automatic mat cleaners where you take your mat out of your car, slide it into this automated machine. It's a wet bat, and it'll wet bat it and dry it and drop it out the bottom is the coolest thing you've ever seen um and it it, those are carpeted mat cleaners we've got plastic mats for the big trucks that don't fit in there we've got a cleaning station for that our car washes are community gathering spots i've noticed you just see people there when you go there that are cleaning and wanting to get the car and
0: and, and the price i mean whatever whatever level you decide to be a part of i mean the vacuum is is included in that some of the sprays i mean because i've heard others say well, I mean, wonder what they yeah they charge you that for the wash, but wonder what they charge for the vacuum and the towels and and some of the other cleaners.
17: So part of the concept is that we offer free towels, free chemicals. We offer free vacuums when you're uh, on our site. Our scrub club members get free air fresheners to to go into their vehicles, and so the whole concept is you know, get in at that club level and you get to enjoy all these amenities, uh, is part of your wash package. And you can literally come every day if you want to come.
0: Okay. If someone wants to be eligible for the golf cart drawing on Friday, they need to do exactly what
17: they need to stop by and join the wash. club. How do you do that? Just pull in the attendant sitting there at the pay station. It's uh, you tell them you want to join the wash club and get in the golf cart uh giveaway for friday morning
0: okay i know where it is some may not we're exactly scrub is scrubby's car wash in florence
17: we're at the corner of beltline and hoffmeyer as you turn to go to uh uh, uh west florence high school walmart sam's and uh it's it's a busy corner but uh, we have three different entrances to get in so swing in there and check it out
0: okay appreciate you my man
17: thank you guys and this is
0: wash me wednesday right rev
17: that's it i, mean, yes, it,
0: I, I read some things yesterday wash me wednesday yep. We have daily sponsors on our show, mm-hmm. and I always smile bigger than normal when a local business becomes a daily sponsor. I had a couple of Wednesdays that were available, and i Wash Me Wednesday.
17: Guys. Well, can I tell you what it is real quick? Sure sure you can. But the Wash Me Wednesday is we are, we are running a promotion for the dirtiest car on Wednesday. And so mm-hmm. you go to our Facebook page and submit your dirty vehicle, and every Wednesday <laughs> we're going to choose a random drawing of the, the dirtiest vehicle. And then they will get a free wash and come over there and we'll clean it up. Got you,
0: but but it really is about. I mean, cars have become a big investment. Yeah, I want to. I don't want to get salesy for a second, but cars have become a big investment, and I think we're almost required to take better care of them than we formerly did. I mean, you know where I grew up, and I know where you grew up, no doubt, uh, in the woods, on farms, and whatnot. But I'm telling you, man, pickups that were five thousand are now sixty and seventy and eighty (laughs) thousand. And I do think long and hard about carrying yeah. for those vehicles.
17: I agree. I think the last truck I bought was uh, cost more than the little apartment I have in Florence. <laughs> I mean, it's, I said, well, maybe I just need to move move into this truck, and I could live in that thing. It's you dirty. And there's all kind of stuff in that truck. That <laughs> but you got to keep survive. it clean, man. That's you right. you
0: got to keep it's it looking clean. Looking good. So, so wash me Wednesday, uh, and yep. if you want to win a golf cart, make sure you go by and register uh, before, and that's becoming a member. Correct. And, and right now, I mean, think about it, guys. Most raffle tickets to win a golf cart are $10. Yep. You don't get anything for it but a random chance to win a golf cart. These guys are offering some um, cleaning your car uh, as part of that. So yep. um, thank you, my man. Anything thank else you
17: want to add? That, 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 that's it. Uh, again, you said it perfectly. It's about 10 bucks, and you can wash your car for the next 30 days. Come try us out. Um, we're going to have some other opportunities for our, member, our, our customers to try the wash. I'll be announcing this Friday, but we're putting a free car wash, QR code on our Facebook page and our website. Starting Friday,
0: who's keeping up with all this for you?
17: I've got a, I've got a host of good people. Cause you're
0: about as technologically advanced as I am. You better believe it. Yeah,
17: I mean, but the, they're younger and a lot smarter. And that's not hard to get smarter. Yeah. I can promise you. Well, but they, I, it ain't real hard to get younger. No, <laughs> it ain't hard to get younger anymore. I'm afraid I'm, it's, it's creeping on me. I'm in the same
0: club you're in. I,
17: I sur- Charles and I surround ourselves with good people. That's the bottom line.
0: Well, and we appreciate so you. you. <laughs> well, I mean, I, well, And I mean this sincerely. When you Same. guys came on board, I was really excited to have another local business as part of our
17: feeble attempt at Radio Bridge. Looking Thank forward you, to man. the future. And, and when
1: you. are you doing the drawing for the cart, and when are you going to announce announce that winner?
17: That, that will be uh, – the drawing will be th- Friday morning, so we'll be announcing it Friday morning. It'll be on our Facebook page. We'll probably call Florrie and let you all know who it is. Yeah, and, do that. And, and let you yep. all put the name out there, too, on Friday morning. So you've got until – Probably Friday morning. I think the drawing is going to be around eight eight thirty Friday morning. Soon. And
0: and the, and the golf cart's out there. I mean, it's not in the garage somewhere. It's sitting there. It's on the display. Mean, you look and it, it's nice.
17: Yep, you can, it's you, real can, if, nice. If you want, you can come by and sit in it and you yeah. can see how it, see how it feels.
0: I, I checked to make sure they had it chained down. I mean, I, you know, I had my trailer with me, but yeah. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I,
17: well, I, I told did. I said if you see anybody from Pampico come in here, put both <laughs> hands on it we know it's coming there you, down. Go. There, you go. there you go. There you go. Appreciate <laughs> you, my man. Thanks, guys. Josh, let's carry it to the end, if you don't mind. I mean, you know,
0: we'll we'll find something to talk about for the next couple of minutes. Rev and I were having a conversation during the last break, and I don't want to – I mean, I think this is too serious an issue to try and cover in two minutes, but what is the morality and ethics? And we'll go down this road tomorrow. Politics is famous for anything goes. I mean, it's a blood sport. I can attest. It is a blood sport. It's a zero-sum game. There's winners and there's losers. But the situation in Georgia – I mean, remember Tragic. remember Willie Horton and Michael Dukakis, he let him off in a furlough and he committed a crime. Um, I mean, in Georgia, is it fair game or not to to go down that road politically? The tragedy of the, the college student at the University of Georgia who was killed and her skull disfigured um, because an illegal immigrant not just came to America illegally, was uh, convict, no, charged with a crime, let loose because of the sanctuary city laws, and tragically killed a young girl, student at the University of Georgia. Should that be part of the campaign in the state of Georgia? Is there some ethical moral code that even politics says that's off limits? I mean, I want to have that conversation tomorrow. Willie Horton was furloughed, committed a crime, some believe calls Michael Dukakis a chance to be president. Does Joe Biden have blood on his hands? I mean, I'm asking that somewhat provocatively, but I'm trying to be sincere. I'm going to Biden policies of open borders and like it or not, he is an open, his, his immigration czar is an open, uh, open border zealot. Biden may not be. But this is the person he put in charge. Mayorkas is an open border zealot. As a result of the open borders, some of the some of the countries that don't wish America well, they're letting some of their criminals out of jail and they're encouraging these criminals. Only way to let you out of jail is if you make your way into America. I mean, imagine the the, the craziness I mean, think about surrounding that. that statement. But but I'm I'm convinced that George is done. I mean, as, as confident as I was that Georgia was going to vote for Trump, if the Trump campaign decides to play that card, how do you play it and maintain some moral and ethical decency? I don't know. I mean, I, I want to have that conversation tomorrow because it's far more complicated than a one-minute soundbite. I mean, it just is. It is a, uh, you know, if you're on Trump's campaign team, do you use that the tragedy? of a female college student being killed and her skull disfigured by an illegal immigrant that made it into our country because we don't secure our border. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.